0: سلام و قسمت سی و۷ پدکست خوش آمدده برنامه ویژه دارم که میخوایم خدمتتان پیشکش کنم البته این برنامه با برنامه های قبلی کم متفاوت تر است این اولین برنامه است که مهمان در برنامه داریم آقای ریچارد فولز شرقشناس و ایرانشناس برجسته کانادایی و استاد دانشگاه کنکوردیای مونترال لطف کردن و آذر شدن با ما صحبت کنند. پروفسور فولز دارای دکترای تاریخ مطالعات خاور میانه از دانشگاه هاروارد است. بهش از دوازده کتاب و بیشتر از صد مقاله علمی نوشته که البته به زبانهای مختلف جهان از جمله به زبان فارسی ترجمه شدن. تأکید پروفسور فولز بیشتر بالای ایرانیان در تاریخ جهان. به ویژه در حوزه عدیان بوده. اگرچه او در مورد اخلاق زیزمویتی و حقوق احیوانات در اسلام و دین زرتشتی نیز، مقالاته نوشته. کتابی را که در موردش با پروفسور فول صحبت میکنم کتاب A History of Tajiks, Iranians of the East یا تاریخ تاجکان ایرانیان شرق است که در سال 2019 میلادی به نشت رسید. کتابی که در مورد تاجکان فرهنگ و قلم روی این حوییت فرهنگی نوشته شده. و قول خود پروفسور فولز یه البته نخستین کار جدی در مورد تاریخ درازمدت تاجکان به یکی زبانهای غربی است. من لینک نسخه اصلی کتاب به زبان انگلیسی و لینک ترجمه کتاب که توسط آقای عبدالخالق لعزاده به زبان دری ترجمه شده روی صفحه فیسبوک جادهای وان میگذارم که شما از ایست از نوشته ها و تحقیقات پروفسور فولز شوید. چرید. ما امیدوارم که روز بتونم مفق شوم آقای لالزاده نیز در برنامه داشته باشم. ما باید یادآور شوم که پروفسور فولز فارسی بلد است و بسیارم روان فارسی صحبت میکنه. اما من چون کتابی که قرار است در موردش صحبت کنیم به زبان انگلیسی مطالعه کرده بودم مناسب دانستم به زبان انگلیسی با اشان صحبت کنم. ممکن است پیشتان سوال خرش شده باشه که چرا باید اولین مهمان برنامه یک ایرانی شناس می بود؟ و مضمون ما چرا باید تاریخ حایت تاجکان می بود؟ من البته در این مورد در آغاز صحبت با آقای فولز اشاره کردیم. به نظر ما شرایط و اوضاع کنونی کشور افغانستان، تاریخ پیچیدهش، و حالت بحرانی و افراطی و قدبی شدن موضوعی حویت و حویتسازی و قهونگرایی اجاب میکنه تا بیشتر گفتمان علمی داشته باشیم نسبت به با گفتگوها و بحثهای بیسمره که همه ما را از یک دگه دل سرد و بیگانه میسازد. ممکن است با درک بیشتر از تاریخ و ریشه های فرهنگی ما بتانیم همدگر هداقل تحمل کنیم و بر حل مشکلات ما بتانیم دوره هم جمع شویم بازی های میلیگرائی قومیتی ما را بجای نمی رسانه بازی میلیت پرستی بازی نوه نیست هم بازی شده و همه می که این نوه بازی هیچ برنده نداره جزی که همه ما دستجمی شکست بخوریم اگر پشتونیزم غلط است و باید نقد شوه تاجکزم چطور می درست باشه پاسخ مناسب به شوونیزم پشتون طالب افرادگرایی تاجک و یا هزاران نیست و به نظر ما هرگزم نباید باشه. برعکس، پاسخ مناسب به شوونیزم پشتون طالبانی و افرادگرایی طالبانی موضوع گیری به مقابل طالب و اندیش طالبانیست. صرف نظر از وابستگی های قومی و مذهبی و زبانی. اگر پشتون استی و طرفدار طالب هستی مایه ننگ ما هستی. اگر تاجیک، هزاره، ازبک، بلوچ و یا از هر قوم دیگری هستی و از سیاست های ها حمایت می کنی باید از خودت خجالت بکشی اگر تاجک هستی و با انتشارات دروغ، با نفرت و روایت های نادرست که در مجموع به طور کل یک قوم محکوم می چون هدفت چوم است و علاقمند هیچ نو نیستی پس در صورت تو به هیچ وجه از طالب بهتر نیستی سیاست های غلط حویتی و قومیتی تشکیل گروه قومی انساری و تفرق انگیز تشکیلات گروه های فرهنگی سیاسی اجتماعی که هدف اصلیشان اشق و محبت و مهربانی و عزوشان نه بلکه نفرت با گروه مقابل است به نظر من رایه حل اساسی بحران کنونی نیست اگر خواهان فیدرالزم هستیم ضرور نیست پایه های فدرالی ما حساسش نفرت و کدورت باشه اگر جدایی می نباید زیر بنای جدایی ما خصومت و دشمنی باشه هر سیستم و یا ارتباط که بر اساس خشم بوجود آمده باشه با مرور زمان شکست می خوره مسئولیت شخصی و فرهنگی و انسانی خود می دانم که کسانه که در مورد یک موضوع از مکده به مراتب بیشتر معلومات تا هد امکان از آنها بیاموزم در نتیجه من البته تلاش میکنم تا در آینده این همه گفتگاه های سازنده و علمی را با دانشمندان، کارشناسان و متخصصین داشته باشم تا تانسته باشم اول از همه درک و فهم خود ره چیز افزایش داره باشم من البته همه گفتگاه ها به شکل سوتی، در خدمت شما ایزوم می‌ذارم تا شما هم از این همه گفت و شنودها بهره شوید لطفا فراموش نکنید که برنامه رو لایک کنید و با دیگه دوستا شیر کنید خب و حالا ای شما و ای هم پروفسور ریچارد فولت I'm here today with Professor Richard Folds, Canadian scholar, cultural historian, specialized in the history of Iranian civilization. He is a professor at the Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. He holds a PhD in Middle Eastern history from Harvard University. He has taught at various universities across the world. He is the author of many, many books and hundreds of scientific articles. And his work has appeared in over a dozen languages, including Farsi. Professor Foles, thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: I actually came across your work when I was doing a little bit of research online to see if I can find um, anything related to the history of the Tajiks. And I'm currently working on a series of podcasts on the history of the different ethnic groups of Afghanistan. I wanted to kind of start with the Tajiks. This is how I found your book, um, A History of Tajiks, Iranians of the East, which I recently uh, finished reading. Now would have to say, it's a it's a fascinating book. It has been translated into Farsi, and I very very much enjoyed reading it. And there, um, you cover a lot of ground. It um, it really helped me to get the um, the overall picture of not only the history of the Tajiks as a distinct ethnic group, but it also helped me understand the current makeup of uh, of Central Asia as a whole a lot better. So, thank you for writing this book.
1: Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it.
0: Now, I'm not sure if you're following any of the recent events in Afghanistan, but there is um, certainly a lot happening on all fronts, especially after the Taliban takeover almost a year ago now. And the reason I mention this is because there is a heated debate going on among my uh, fellow Afghans how to respond um, to what has been happening to the country. A lot of it uh, is also kind of related to ethnicity. I see that especially ethnic Tajiks of the country or rather the intellectual elite of this ethnic group, as pushing for some sort of Tajik ethnic awareness, and a kind of nostalgic and romantic, um, maybe even a little bit of um, Tajik chauvinism or patriotism. Now, this might be a reaction or um, overreaction to Taliban policies that are affecting a lot of the minorities, including the Tajiks. And this type of you know overreaction um, or exaggeration is not that unusual, and this was kind of expected. However, um, my sense is that, unfortunately, often false narratives are spread for political reasons. Now, history gets distorted by all sides of the debate, and no one really knows, you know, how to distinguish facts from fiction anymore. Now, I sense a revival of ethnic tensions and even hatred and suspicion, which has, you know, caused... Extreme polarization, lots of online and offline discussions. People are, you know, being asked about their ethnicity and ethnic affiliations and their support for a specific ethnic group. Now, my sense is that ethnicity is being politicized and even weaponized as we speak. What I hope to achieve um, through this conversation with yourself is perhaps to get a better understanding and try to at least get rid of um, some of the confusion that... Um, Currently exists around this topic, specifically regarding Tajik history and uh, identity. Now, I really hope you can uh, help me with that. I'll do my best. We have, I guess, a lot of ground to cover here. I mean, five thousand 5, years of history, to be precise. So, um, but I would like to start by asking you um, if you could perhaps, you know, tell us um, about the about the missed opportunities for you to kind of visit Afghanistan. Uh, you talk about this at the very end of the book. And uh, my understanding is that you have never really been to Afghanistan. Well, you know, you have visited uh, Central Asia many times before Um uh, you also kind of mentioned in the book, you know, that uh, as a historian, you know, one is kind of required to, to go to the places, uh, you know, where we actually write about these places. So, and I believe you have been to Tajikistan, you know, you have been to Uzbekistan and, and perhaps also to the other kind of former Soviet republics, but not to Afghanistan. So, you know, where I believe we have, you know, almost 35% or even more of the people are kind of, uh, you know, from Tajik origins. So I was wondering, you know, can you, Perhaps you know, explain what happened and, and why you never kind of managed to, to visit Afghanistan.
1: Well, it's one of my uh, great life frustrations as um, a historian of Iranian civilizations, never to have physically spent time in one of the most important uh, regions historically of, um, of, of, of this civilization. The first missed opportunity I had was back in 1978. Um, I was a young young student uh, hitchhiking from Paris to the south of France, and I got picked up uh, by a couple of French hippies in a Citroën de chevaux. And they said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the south of France. And they they said, we're going to Afghanistan. You want to come? And (laughs) I At that time, Afghanistan was kind of off my radar, and I said, "No, I'll, 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 I'll just get off in, uh, in 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 Nice, thanks." <laughs> and uh, I've, you know, I've regretted it ever since because, of course, a few months later, the Soviet tanks rolled in, and you know, uh, it's been very difficult uh, to, to, to to visit Afghanistan ever since then. Um, uh, I've I've kind of looked at Afghanistan from every side. I've I've been to. Iran many times. I've been to Pakistan several times. Uh, once uh, uh, in about 1988, I think, when the you know uh, uh, when the war was in uh, full swing, I was staying in Peshawar, and some a uh, 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 guy you know put me on the back of his motorbike, and we drove up to the border. You know, <laughs> so, but you know couldn't 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 cross it. And you know there were there were signs all over the Grand Trunk Road, you know, from the Pakistan government saying if you leave this road the pakistan government will not pay to retrieve your dead body <laughs> so you know um, and uh, i uh, more recently uh, during several trips to tajikistan i um uh, uh, i was uh, um traveling to uh, i was traveling to uh, the, the the badakhshan region in the pamirs and and i actually have traveled the border between Tajikistan and Afghanistan from one end to the other three times. Um, uh, 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 That is to say all the way from, you know, the border of Uzbekistan and on the, you know, Amu Darya River all the way to the border of China. <clears throat> uh, and so I have seen afghanistan <laughs> I've seen more of Afghanistan than a lot of countries that i've actually set foot in and you know i mean at in places the the Panj River is so narrow you could kind of hop across and 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 uh you know i've you know uh, you know waved at villagers and you know shouted at little kids playing football on the Afghan side and watched women hang up their laundry and you know, you know, uh, you know, men gather their sheep and so forth. Um, but I've never actually set foot in Afghanistan. And this was a great frustration for me because uh, I'm not one of those scholars who believes that, you know, in, in making a career out of information that I've gotten from books, uh, it's always been very important to me to physically uh, and personally experience uh, the life of the cultures that I'm studying. Um, and in that sense, I guess I'm kind of a... Uh, a, an untrained closet ethnographer, um, I'm, you know, more than a historian, but I, I, I really value this kind of direct experience a lot. And I've had it in most of the places that I've studied. Uh, I've spent uh, considerable time on the ground uh, living with people. And, uh, and and that's never been possible in Afghanistan. And I wrote about that a lot in the book. Uh, and to my <clears throat> uh, surprise uh, and, and, and flattered pleasure uh, uh association of of, of uh, afghan tajiks in the uk invited me to uh, present the book in 2019 and they made a big ceremony at uh, the school of oriental and african studies and and they they gave me awards and 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 they you know several hundred people came and it was just great and uh, and that's where i met the fellow who ended up translating the book into daddy uh, which came out in 2020 uh, mm-hmm. I don't think it's available in Afghanistan anymore since uh, since since a year ago, which is unfortunate. Um, uh, it is uh, hopefully going to come out in Iran uh, at some point.
0: Uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, w- w- why, why would it? Well, so, yeah, as so, I hear so, from the
1: publisher, so, they it, don't have access to their warehouses anymore. The publisher's all fled. Um, and uh, I, mm-hmm. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, if somebody is in Afghanistan right now and can tell me, oh, yeah, I saw your book in the bookstore the other day, I'll be thrilled um but i haven't heard any such mm-hmm. reports but for 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 a year anyway it it you know it was it got a lot of news coverage in afghanistan it was um it was uh, reviewed in some some uh, major media outlets and uh, i was invited for a 1 hour uh, television interview on one of the afghan television channels uh, and uh, so you know it 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 seemed to be getting appreciated <clears throat> And I mean, I, I'm very touched by this because I, I'm, I've been quite forthcoming that, for me, the weak point of this book is the fact that I know less about the, uh, the reality of Tajiks living in Afghanistan than, than I do in any of the other countries where they live. Even I was able to go to China and the Tajik region of Western China, but I've never been to Afghanistan. Um, so for me, it's a, it's a weak point. And the fact that uh, Tajiks from Afghanistan have been so appreciative of the book has been, you know, very, very touching to me. And, and at that event, they actually said, well, good news, uh, Professor Fultz, we have an invitation here for you to visit Afghanistan. All expenses paid. And, you know, that was, of course, very exciting. Um, but then, you know, it, it wasn't able to follow up because of, you know, events that everybody is is aware of. And, um, you know, an Afghan journalist friend of mine told me this past summer when I went to Uzbekistan to do some follow-up research on he said, now would be a good time for you to visit Afghanistan because it's, you know, it's much safer now. <laughs> it's more stable. And he actually, you know, gave me the contacts of some people in the Taliban government and said, you know, they'll probably, you know, help you out. And, um, and I was tempted, you know, but, you know, uh, my wife, you know, said, you know, we've got a small child and, you know, <laughs> don't go taking any risks. It's not. So if I had been, you know, if I were 20 years old, I would have done it for sure. But, um, but probably at this stage in my life, I need to be more conservative
0: <clears throat> right. those are obviously you know it it, it is sad to hear that it kind of never happened you know you, you visiting Afghanistan, I mean it would have been great obviously not not just for the for the book, but I think it would have definitely added something uh, to to your own personal experience as well as well as you know just um your scholarly work and, and, uh, th- those were missed opportunities. And, and I think you even, you know, you have a picture of the, uh, of the actual border, the Tajik Afghan border in your book. And, and when, when I saw that, I was like, hmm, a couple of
1: them. Yeah. yeah. That, that's right. <laughs> a couple and of them.
0: Yeah. yeah so that you know, I, I was really, um, kind of touched by all of this because, um, because you were so close, you know, and, uh, and do you really re- regret not kind of, you know, when I saw that picture in the Dodger border, I was like, hmm, may- maybe you could have just, you know, kind of jumped over that little, you know, stream of, of water and just, you know, f- placed your foot there. And, and, and now we, we would have a different conversation. You know, you would have said, oh, well, I, I was there once and, and this happened.
1: Yeah. Or I'd be dead. Uh, I mean, uh, my, you know, my, I, I was tempted. I was sorely tempted and, 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 uh, you know, as I write in the, in, in the book, uh, you know, my Tajik driver, he said, no, absolutely not. I said, why not? He said, they'll shoot you. I said, who, you know, those shepherds over there. I mean, who's going to shoot me? You know, those kids playing, playing soccer. Who's going to shoot me? They'll probably invite me for tea. Um, and he said, no, 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 no. And, you know, and I said, well, I said, what, what do you do if, uh, you know somebody's sheep you know wanders across the border you don't you just go across and get it and and he said oh no 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 no! you go up to the border post it's 200 kilometers away i don't think anybody does that if their sheep goes across the river i don't think they go 200 kilometers up the to the border post you know but in any case no i i i, I didn't yeah uh, I didn't
0: well it, so. I, I i'm not in a place to to judge that i mean i wasn't there so i wouldn't know but uh you know it is, these are just uh you know what would well, have been great obviously but um so having said that you know why is it Really that, with the exception of course of yourself and, and Mr. Fry, uh, a great scholar of uh, Iranian studies, uh, to whom you actually dedicate your book to, you yeah. know, no, no Western scholar has actually taken interest in the, History of the Tajiks. I mean, you know, y- your book is the very first book ever written on the topic by a Western scholar. So, wasn't the history of the Tajiks, I would say, like a a low-hanging fruit? You know, uh, from a from a historian's point of view, you know, that could have been kind of picked up by the historians earlier. You know, why did it take so long for anyone to actually write about this? Well,
1: it's a good question. Um uh, Professor Fry said he was going to write such a book. And that was my motivation to eventually do it because he didn't end up doing it. And when I was a graduate student, I was looking forward to reading his book about the history of the Tajiks and it never, it never appeared. So um, uh, anyway, uh, I mean, I described the whole process in the, in, in the introduction uh, to the book, but uh, well, I don't know if it's low hanging fruit or not, but I mean, there are so many biases that have become ingrained in the way that area studies have developed in Western academia over the past century or more. And, and, and most of it has to do with colonial era politics um, because, you know, the Russians were taking over one part of Central Asia, the British were taking over another part, and the Persians were kind of, you know, struggling to maintain their independence and 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 so it it kind of you know this was kind of reflected in academia because academia although claims to be independent it's always been to at least some extent in the service of you know government and business and um and, and there's also the more practical reason is that during the soviet period western scholars did not have access to the documents and the territories um, that the Russians had colonized. Um, and, 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 you know, so uh, Central Asian studies um, it has very much been affected by the political history of the region in the past 150 years or so. And that's been tied up with originally Western notions of ethnicity and religion and things like that as, as social categories. Um, and we should remind ourselves that that these ways of defining identity are are products of modernity and they don't reflect the way people identified themselves in pre-modern times or indeed in many societies today that have not entirely transitioned to um, uh, to 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 what we call modernity Um, people define themselves in other ways so uh, a word like Tajik, um, it, it's so hard to unpack its historical transformations of meaning going back to its first appearance 1,500 years ago in Middle Persian sources. <clears throat> it's changed meaning uh, so many times. And most recently, it's uh, uh, been very heavily imprinted by the ideology of the Bolsheviks in the, in the first part of the of the of the 20th century, who basically re-engineered uh, Central Asian identities um, in, in ways that were highly unnatural and and did not respect the history of the peoples of the region, but that stayed with us right up to the present day.
0: This was one of the questions that I had, and and before we actually kind of you know dive into the the very specifics of of history itself, you know, I, I was I was hoping that we could you know at least get some of the the definitions uh, here. So, you know, what do we really mean by something like, you know, and you mentioned this in the book as well, you know, we, we have terms like Iran, Iranian, Persia, Persian, Farsi uh, and Tajik, you know, I I wonder are are these all kind of synonyms? You know, how has this kind of changed its its meaning and definition, uh, and how has that kind of evolved throughout history? What do we really mean by the by the term uh, Tajik in its original sense, um, and 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 in its more kind of modern sense of the word?
1: Well, uh, they're certainly not synonyms, but there's a lot of semantic overlap, and as you say, the the, the meanings are quite fluid. There are no hard and fast fixed meanings to any of these terms. And in order to have any kind of meaningful conversation, the first thing we have to do when we use one of these terms is to give our definition, you know, say, well, when I use this word, I'm using it in this context, or I'm talking about this period of history, or I'm talking about this particular kind of social situation Uh, uh, you know and people don't do that they're very careless about how they use uh, terms and they don't define them and they don't contextualize them so Mm -hmm. that's where a lot of the confusion comes from so you know you asked what does tajik mean well tajik means many different things depending on the history and depending on the context right so i mean it it, it, i i i'm quite convinced that it derives from uh uh the uh, um middle persian term kind of a collective term for arabs which was inaccurate even then um uh, uh a tazik uh, which uh, uh was derived from the name of a particular arab tribe so even 15 the Thai. so even 1500 years ago the persians were using the term in an inaccurate way they were using a term for one arab tribe to describe all arabs now, you know, with the Muslim conquest of Central Asia in the 8th century, when most of the soldiers on the ground were probably actually, you know, Persian converts to Islam and speaking Persian, um, uh, you know, Central Asia was, by the time Central Asia was, was, was conquered, uh, uh, Islamization had taken on a very Iranian uh, Persian uh, color. So, for the native inhabitants of Central Asia, who spoke Sogdian or Bactrian further south in what's now Afghanistan, Iranian languages, uh, but you know, uh, but but not the same language as Persian. And these people, who followed different religions, um, uh, saw these invaders, many of whom were Iranians, but they they were seen as foreigners because they were bringing a foreign religion, foreign traditions, foreign power. And so they were, they were again, inaccurately lumped together with the Arabs. Um, so this term Tazik, uh, 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 which appears in different forms in Sogdian and, 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 and modern Persian, um, but uh, you know, variations on this term are referring, again, inaccurately in many cases, um, uh, but just meant a, a Persian-speaking Muslim well it meant first just a muslim invader and then it meant more specifically a persian speaking muslim um and then over time as you know a, a persian kind of displaced sogdian and bactrian from these regions uh, uh, and and uh, most people came to become muslim it uh, came to uh, be a term that w- that differentiated persian speaking muslims from turks um, and so for the next thousand years or so, we see, when we see the term Tajik, it's almost invariably, uh, coupled with the term Turk, Turk, or Tajik. They always go together. And the reason they always go together is because it represented the way people saw human society in that part of the world, uh, during those centuries. It was made up of basically two kinds of people. You know, there were Turks and there were Tajiks. And that, and language is only a small part of that. Um, uh, it was more of a sociological uh, distinction. You know, to say that somebody's a Turk implies that they are, you know, pastoral nomadic. They're coming from the steppes. They're, you know, kind of uncouth, unwashed, you know, uh, uncivilized. And to be a Tajik means you're, you know, urban dweller. You're, you're sophisticated um you, uh, you, uh, you know, maybe literate or at least you know literature i mean it, it, it's it's really more a sociological distinction than a linguistic distinction languages is just part of that but of course it's even to to have that dichotomy is very deceptive because there was so much uh interaction between the the two kinds of societies and more and more turks you know would settle in the urban areas, they would become Islamicized, they would become Persianized, both linguistically and culturally. And then they would get called, you know, they would, you know, uh, 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 Tajiks by other Turks who hadn't gone through that process yet. And you see that already in the 11th century with the uh, uh, Divan logata Turk of uh, Mahmud Kashgari, who was a kind of Turkic purist living in Kashgar. And he was very uh, uh, insulting towards Turks that he saw as becoming Tajikified, you know, um, uh, it, because from the Turk point of view, I mean, in the sociological sense of being kind of a rough and ready horseback riding warrior from the steppes, you know, who can sleep out and, you know, uh, uh, under the, you know, uh, night sky and who, you know, to, to survive on his own, you know, Tajik also implied that you're kind of soft. You don't know how to fight. You know, you just, you know, you're dependent on the luxuries of the city. And so forth and so on. So and this remained, this dichotomy remained kind of a paradigm describing the 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 the, the complexity of Central Asian society right up until the end of the 19th century, when these European uh, scholars and 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 and, you know invaders basically started describing or redescribing Central Asian society according to terms that you know were more convenient. Uh, to them and so as a result by the 1920s we have this massive transformation in what these identities actually meant and these have now been internalized so that central Asians themselves have come to see them uh, their identities in in these terms which were originally imposed on them by outsiders right
0: there there's so much in there right so because your book obviously you know the, the title is Iranians of the East you also just mentioned you know we have the the linguistic feature of this and then we have also the sociological meaning you know of of um, of tajiks and and turks and and how they have been kind of you know used together uh, as such you know historically speaking i would like to ask you something about you said earlier about islam and the role of islam in in all of this because when we say you know history of tajiks iranians of the east Uh, As the title goes, shouldn't the title kind of have been, you know, Farsi speaking Muslims of the East? I mean, I'm asking this because, you know, is it is it enough to be an Iranian to be considered a Tajik or or does an Iranian also need to be a Muslim in order to kind of qualify?
1: Well, first of all, I have to say it really grates on my ears when people uh, use the term Farsi as an English word. It's not an English word. It's a Persian word. Farsi is the Persian word for the Persian language. Um, the English word for Persian is Persian. Uh, uh, so I mean, to, 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 to call the language Farsi is like saying, Oh, do you speak Deutsch or, you know, uh, you know, my, uh, my, my, my friend is a, is, is a Ruski speaker, you know, it's, it's a bit pretentious and, and I wish, that people would <laughs> um, kind of take that to heart and, 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 and stop doing that. So, you know, but um, uh, Iranian is a very broad term in linguistics and, and with language. We have to start with, you know, the, the history of linguistics and what, you know, and, and, the, and the names that linguists give to languages. And, uh, uh, and um, Iranian is, again, an English word uh, uh you know, Persian word is uh, irani um, and and it derives from a term going back I think more than four thousand years, although we only have uh actual attestation of it going back around two thousand five hundred years. We have it in the inscriptions of uh Darius the Great Darius the First in Bisatun and elsewhere where he says that you know he is an Aryan and and then and, and that his inscriptions uh, are uh, in the Aryan language um that means Iranian I mean uh, Iranian comes from Aryan there's a case to be made that that this was a self identification of what we call the Iranian peoples, their 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 you know common ancestors going back at least four thousand years. They referred to themselves as Arya, so Iranian comes from that. And since all of the speakers, uh, since all of the languages, all of the Iranian languages go back to that common linguistic ancestor, uh, going back maybe four thousand years or more. Um, They are known as Iranian languages, at least linguists know them as that. Okay, So anyone who speaks one of those Iranian languages as a native language kind of naturally gets categorized as an Iranian. So um, uh, now if we talk about Tajiks, well, Tajiki, standard Tajiki, standard Dari, standard uh, Persian, Farsi, are the same language. They are, they are they are they are variants of the same language. They are not different languages, and that's one of the falsehoods that has been promoted, starting with the Bolsheviks uh, uh, in the nineteen twenties, uh, even a little earlier, and and, and right up to the day, today. They are not separate languages because you know speakers of standard Tajiki and Dadi and Farsi can understand each other. And the definition of Uh, A separate language is that, you know, the speakers cannot understand each other. So Spanish and Portuguese are not the same language because when one person speaking Portuguese, the other speaking Spanish, they don't understand each other. Okay, but for example, Galician, which is spoken in the northwest of Spain, is close enough to Portuguese that it could be considered a dialect of it. So. Uh, you can say that there are dialects of, uh, of, of Persian, which are spoken in Afghanistan and Tajikistan. But also, there's a difference between the standard versions and the versions spoken in various regions. So, for example, if you were in Iran, you can go maybe 100 kilometers out of Tehran and find villages where pe- people are speaking a dialect of Persian that the Tehranis cannot understand. OK, and it, it's the same anywhere you go, whether you're talking about Dushanbe or whether you're talking about Kabul or whatever. You know, there's a difference between the dialects spoken in villages and the standard language, which is spoken in the major cities and which is promoted in education and the media. OK, but uh, in, in, so, so this is a big confusion here. So but these are but, but they're all Iranian languages. You know, Pashto is an Iranian language. Um, Baluch is an Iranian language. Uh, So they're all part of the same language family because they all descend from a common linguistic ancestor going back several thousand years. So the Baluch and the Pashtuns are also Iranians from a linguistic point of view. But the problem is that people far too often, they conflate language and race. And all you have to do is think about cases like, you know, uh, you know, uh, Latin America, where you have, you know, where the, 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 in so many countries, uh, Spanish is the major language, but, you know, the majority of the population are indigenous and they may actually speak another language, you know, Mayan or Quechua or something, you know, uh, as native languages and learn Spanish in school. Uh, to, so to, you know, lump them together with the natives of Spain, um, is, 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 you know, it's uh, racially makes no sense. Right. And it's and and, and people, you know, uh, uh, tend to do the same with 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 different languages. So, of course, um, all of these different Iranian speaking ethnicities in the world today each have their own histories, which involves a lot of mixing and migrating. And uh, uh, there's probably very little uh, uh, DNA in any of them that that would correspond to the DNA of these Aryan speakers of Western Siberia 4,000 years ago. Now, you know, the earliest mentions of the Aryans describe them as being blonde-haired and blue-eyed. Now, you can find blonde-haired, blue-eyed people throughout the Iranian world, but they're rare. And what that tells us is that just because you speak an Iranian language doesn't mean that you are heavily descended from the original speakers of that ancestor language right you know that everybody is mixed with you know through migrations they've mixed with new populations and 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 one language you know i mean in the united states the you know the largest uh racial group is germans so why is english the national language you know most people well, the majority of people in the united states have germanic family names you know so, you know, the, uh, there's a lot of German migration in the 19th century. Okay. But there's nobody thinks of the United States as a Germanic country. It's I think of, a, of a, as a, as an Anglo country. So it's the same with Iranians. It's the same with the Iranian peoples. They, wherever Iranian speakers have gone, they have mixed with local populations. And, you know, uh, so this idea of mixing, co- combining race with, or uh, conflating race with language is a huge mistake. And it leads to a lot of unnecessary conflict and false claims.
0: There's so much there because I'm trying to understand, you know, if language has played such a major role in in that region. I mean, it's not just that region. I mean, it's all over over the world. I mean, language is um have absolutely you know everything to do with how people identify themselves you know even as an ethnicity it seems to me uh or, or even as a race but it doesn't necessarily have to be that you know when we talk race and things like this and ethnicity may, maybe there are kind of you know biological and even physical and genetic differences right and then on the other side you know we have the more uh, linguistics and 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 the cultural and the historical uh perspectives right and um So these two things, you know, when they get conflated, yes, there are issues about that. And they, you know, certainly, um, cause, you know, even wars and and things like this. And that's something we are actually experiencing right now as, as we speak and, and a country like Afghanistan, unfortunately. And because there's a lot of questions about this and there, there's a lot of, um, debates on, you know, what it, what does it really mean to, when I say, you know, I am a Persian, you know, we're all Iranians or I'm a Pashtun and, and you're a Tajik. And, and so these are all, terms and they are very loaded as we speak. Uh, You know, they are unfortunately being misplaced. They are misused by certain people, but also, you know, people who, who would think this person is telling me this. So it must be this way or it must be that way. And so when we say Iranian and then Tajik, I mean, I understand that the Tajik people are Iranians. Iranians are not Tajiks per se, right? That, that, that's one, one side of the story. And then you, you also said, um, you know, about the Turks and the Uzbeks and the Pashtuns of that region. So I have a question about that. Now, if, if I want to distinguish, say, a Tajik from a Turk, Uzbek or Pashtun, and I mean, not just linguistically or culturally, but genetically. Um, you know, if we suppose we take like a random sample from Central Asia or East Asia, would we be able to kind of distinguish these people or or not, because you know there has been so much mixing on mixing going on there with their g- genetic makeup. Has there been any genetic studies done around this? Do we know?
1: Yes, there have. there have indeed. and 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 they've shown the extent to which all of these, you know racial arguments are completely uh, nonsense. And uh, if you take the Uzbeks and Tajiks, for example, again, these are identities that are, were pure constructions by the Soviet ideologues at the beginning of the of the, of the, of the, of the Soviet period. And they did not correspond to the reality on the ground. And the genetic studies have proven that in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, just to take an example, that um, that there is absolutely no genetic distinction between Uzbeks and Tajiks in these two countries. They're the same people. And, 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 you know, I, I, I was just there uh, a, a couple of months ago for a month, and, and, and I was talking about these things with colleagues. And every single person I spoke to agreed that culturally there is no difference between Uzbeks and Tajiks. It's just the language. And this was a Soviet tool. It was a divide and rule tool. Now, the reality is that prior to the Soviet period, the urban populations of Central Asia were bilingual. People spoke Persian and Turkish you know with equal facility um and that was not it was not language that identified people people were identified by their village of origin by their profession you know their their they're, yeah, but, but but not uh, not in terms of language that 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 that, that was that, that was imposed as 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 the principal identity marker that was imposed for political reasons.
0: I mean, isn't that what's being imposed right now as we as we speak? But then you know, in, in in a country like Afghanistan, I mean, we just mentioned you know, F Pashto and Farsi and even Hazaragi. You know, these are languages. These are dialects of of the Iranian language. There is this family tree of languages, right? We we have the you know Indo-Iranian language, and then we have the Iranian language, and then this kind of. You know, branches out into all these different dialects in the region. I mean, this is a very natural progress of every single language in the world, right? I mean, it's, it's almost like a Darwinian process, right? Um, you know, we have like a common ancestor. So, you know, Pashtuns and Tajiks, as far as I'm aware, and, and, you know, the way I, I understood it uh, just now, you, you explaining it to me is that, you know, they definitely share a common ancestor. The Iranian language.
1: A common linguistic ancestor. Right. But that doesn't mean they share a common racial right. ancestor, right. you know? Right. But uh, <clears throat> again, why does that even matter? Hmm. You know, why? Because race, there, there are no pure races anywhere in the world. And especially in Central Asia, which has been a crossroads for thousands of years. It's impossible to even conceive that there could be anything like a pure racial identity anywhere in Central Asia. Everybody has got so much DNA from all over the place. And if you ever do one of these DNA studies that you can do, you know, through the mail now, I mean, uh, it, you, you, you will see, you know, we're all mongrels. We're all so mixed. Um, and so, uh, yeah, again, these these notions of division. They come from other things. They don't come from our blood. They don't come from our language. They come from tribal mentalities, right. uh, local traditions, you know. Mm. It, uh, yeah. So, yeah. I and mean,
0: it also kind of depends, you know, how, you know, how important it is for you as a person, you know, living uh, in a specific context and a specific country, you know, how are things politically, socially, economically? I would think, you know, once, once these things happen, then people, Unfortunately, you know, people kind of seek their own tribe, and and you know, and and see, you know, where where do I really belong? Especially if there's a warfare going on, or or you know, one group is kind of imposing their rules on a on a on another group. You know, then I think it's quite natural to think, oh, you know what? I I need to defend myself against this this you know foreign culture or foreign language or whatever it is. And I think that might be one of the reasons, you know, why specifically that region of the world, has been politicized, but also polarized, right? In a sense, language has been kind of weaponized um, and and people thought of themselves in in tribal ways. You know, I I belong to this tribe, or I belong to that that tribe. And and that, unfortunately, has caused a lot of trouble.
1: Well, I think that uh, probably tribal thinking is ingrained in us as humans, uh, and it probably is very primitive. And I think, you know, a lot of our (laughs) non-human... primate um, uh, relatives uh, uh, have it as well, and it's a defense mechanism. But it is, it is a primitive impulse. And if we wanna think of ourselves as civilized, I, I would hope that we would aspire to get beyond that because otherwise it's just the law of the jungle. And, and sadly, um, these uh, uh, identities, whether genuine or, or constructed, are regularly manipulated by political leaders for their own purposes to create constituencies to advance their agendas. And as we see, I mean, Afghanistan is an extreme case, you know, of of the violence and suffering that that leads to. And 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 again, I would personally just hope that one day we can get beyond that.
0: Well, I hope that this conversation at least provides some some perspectives, some new perspectives. Hopefully, let's travel to really kind of, if you want, ancient times and and you know begin at the very beginning, namely you know with the Aryans. You already mentioned them a few times, right? Um, th- this is very prehistorical times, and according to your book, the story of the Tajiks, you know, actually kind of begin with the migration of the Aryans or the Aryan tribes and. This is like four or 4,000 years ago. And they were coming in from the north or Siberia um, in, into the regions now we call Central Asia. So let me first of all ask you, you know, who were these people, these ancient Aryans? You know, what kind of language were they speaking? Did they have like a specific religion, you know, any any social, even political systems that they would uh, adhere to?
1: Yes. Well, of course, any starting point is purely arbitrary. And uh, so you need to justify why you're going to start here and not there. Now, I I like to focus on this period of 4,000 years ago simply because it is the earliest point in history for which I believe we have sufficient evidence from different kinds of sources to justify talking about a specifically Aryan identity. I mean, prior to that, of course, they had ancestors, right? They didn't just come out of a vacuum. Um, uh, who were these ancestors? But the point is that the further you go back into history, the less evidence you have, and the harder it is to build a case for an argument. So just for my own convenience, because I think that there's enough evidence to build a, a clear argument for the existence of an Aryan identity in this context in Western Siberia around 4,000 years ago, that's a good starting point. There may have been people prior to that who considered themselves Aryans, but, I mean, we, we cannot make a case for that. There's, there's just not the evidence. So the kinds of evidence that we have for this early Aryan society in, uh, uh, in the region around the southern Ural Mountains in, in, in what's now Russia um, uh, is from a combination of sources. Um, one is historical linguistics, and it's rather complicated. I'll try to simplify the methodology for you. Um, uh, when you're comparing different languages, like, of course, we don't have any texts from that period, right? We only have much later texts, but we have different languages and we can compare them and we can cons- we can see what words they have in common, okay? So if you... Uh, say you know see that in, in in these different languages they all have a variation of the same word for for example birch tree then that is can be taken as pretty strong evidence that their ancestors lived in an environment that had birch trees right so um but if the word for palm tree is different in every one of those languages that you can guess that they encountered palm trees for the first time after they migrated, right? To new regions. I mean, that's, that's the logic of this methodology. So then you can kind of plot these, what are called isoglosses onto, onto actual territories and see, you know, where, well, where, you know, so it had, they had, their ancestors had to have lived somewhere that had a lot of birch trees, you know, and you can combine all different vocabulary, and create a picture of the environment that they lived in. That's one source of evidence is, is, is comparative historical linguistics. Another is mythology. You know, you look at the myths of these different people and you sift out the differences and you look at that common core and what kind of society, what kind of world is described and evoked in those myths. Okay, that's another one. Um, you, then you look at archaeology because through material culture, you can trace the development of societies and you can trace their movements because each society develops its own distinctive material culture. So when you see that material culture moving, then that can tell you something also. So you, you combine all these things together and you can start to form a picture of what these prehistoric societies were like and 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 how they moved and developed over time.
0: What do we exactly know about these people?
1: Well, we what we can guess about these people because we can't know anything for sure, uh, but but based on the the kinds of methodologies and the use of evidence that I just described, we can start to form a a picture of what we assume these societies were probably like. And a few of the salient characteristics seem to be that They were pastoral nomadic. They were dependent upon their domesticated livestock. Um, But uh, but because they lived in very precarious uh, uh, ecological conditions, very extreme uh, uh, variations between hot, dry summers and absolutely frigid winters, um, they were very much living on the edge of survival and that raiding their neighbors was a uh, was an integral and necessary part of their economy. And what that gives us is a culture which places a high value on warrior uh, skills. So, you know, the, the, the the myths are where we see the valorization of the hero who goes out and, you know, and, 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 and raids the enemy and brings back, you know, cattle and women, uh, you know, to enrich his own, a community and we see these you know kinds of values very positive in in the myths of these people. Then we can look at the archaeological record and see, well, first of all, that the horse was probably the most highly valued animal. Um, uh, They were very dependent on the horse. They were probably descended from the first humans to domesticate the horse, which occurred uh, in Central Asia probably 5,500 years ago or so. And this gave them a huge advantage over their enemies because if, you know, I mean, if, you know, just imagine any fight between somebody on horseback and somebody standing on the ground. It's an un- unequal fight. The person on the horse has a huge advantage. And another advantage they had was that they had become very, very skilled in metallurgy. And it seems that uh, that each home had its own forge. So individually, they, they, they forged their own weapons, and their weapons were better than the weapons of their enemies. So you can imagine the advantage that they had uh, uh, over, over their neighbors, uh, you know, having, you know, being on horseback and having, having, having superior weapons, swords and bows and arrows and so forth. And it's interesting that a lot of the Aryan peoples come to be known in history as mounted archers. So, for example, the Scythians that appear in the records of the Greeks from the you know, 6th century BC onwards, the Scythians are those you know, barbarians to the northeast that come out of the steppes, and you can't defeat them because they're they're too fast and they're too skilled with the bow and arrow, and they just you know they terrorize you, and they they become a problem for the Greeks and later the Romans for the next half a millennium. Probably Sogdian, the uh, the term for the ancestors of the Tajiks in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, probably comes from the same root. Um, so these people were 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 known. As mounted archers, that was their most remarkable feature: is that they were very skilled on horseback, firing bows and arrows, and that made them basically, uh, you know, undefeatable uh, uh, in 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 battle. They were very patriarchal. We they they had a very highly stratified society, divided into uh, 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 classes, um, uh, with uh, priests at the top of the uh, 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 priests who acted as tribal chiefs who were responsible for kind of the, the the religious ceremonies. And then below that, you had a larger category of the warriors who were the, you know, these very highly esteemed uh, members of the society who would go out on raids. And then you have the much larger sort of, you know, uh, uh, base of the triangle, which was the, what we could call producers. So depending on the particular ecological context and, you know, whatever, Time and place that would be people who were responsible for pasturing the livestock or, you know, as the transition to urban uh, lifestyles uh, took place or, you know, agricultural, they'd be people that are you know, producing agriculture or, or eventually, you know, in industry and so forth. So that third category and then the fourth category below that would be foreigners captured in battle and enslaved. And this becomes the basis of the caste system, which we see existing in India right up to the present day. But in fact, all... Indo-European societies show echoes of it on on some level or another.
0: Right. So I actually have a bunch of questions about all of this. First of all, these nomadic warriors raiding, you know, they were great mountain archers and they're patriarchal and they have a caste system and all of this. And if I understand correctly, they, they were basically migrating from the north to the south because of some sort of a climate change back in those days. So
1: that is the most popular guess. Again, we don't know for sure, but it makes sense. And actually people have studied. The the the, the you know, clim- you know historical climatologists have studied the climate of four thousand years ago and said yes uh, things got really really bad around then in, in in this part of the world and that would have been a major incentive for people to to move and try and find somewhere more livable
0: right and and so so we we are going through a climate change ourselves right now uh, in our own lifetimes but this this was a different kind of I, w- I would think it was a you know it wasn't a climate change caused by human beings at least um, so mm. so that's the ma- ma- major Difference here. But um
1: well, the one we're entering is, is is going to be a lot worse, and there's going to be a lot more migration.
0: Who were the original or kind of ethnic people of Central Asia before the arrival of the Aryans, you know, or these nomadic tribes? Do we know anything about that?
1: Yeah, uh, we well, first of all, that wasn't one people. There were many different peoples that living in different parts of Central Asia, but probably the most significant pre-Aryan peoples for, for understanding Tajik history are the peoples that lived in the basin of the, of what the Greeks called the Oxus river, what we call today, the Amu Darya. So, you know, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, uh, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, all this, this, uh, that's all the drainage basin of, you know, of the Amu Darya. So this region, the Oxus region, um, uh, uh, had a very highly developed civilization going back, you know, before this time, a, a highly developed urban urban and agricultural civilization so a settled society that was very very different um, anthropologically from that of the Aryans who were nomadic uh, um, uh, pastoralists from from the north so in fact you couldn't really imagine two more opposite kinds of societies now we don't know what language the the these Oxus peoples spoke, because essentially no written records. There are a few. There are a few things that seem to be written documents, but nobody has figured out what they say. Um, there are different theories because in the material culture we see that there was a kind of cultural triangle uh between uh, the Oxus region. Sumeria in southern Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley in what's now Pakistan. That these were, these all had highly advanced civilizations at that time. And the Oxus civilization appears to have been in close interaction with the other two. We don't know if there was, you know, any linguistic commonality, if they had some common ancestry. You know, we still haven't deciphered. The 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 language of the Indus Valley civilization. Again, we have documents, but they haven't been deciphered. Um, it's theorized that they may have linguistic connections with the Sumerians. Uh, that may be true uh, of the Oxus peoples as well. We don't know. Uh, but what we but 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 there's a lot of material culture from the Oxus civilization. And what we see is that beginning some four thousand years ago, that the Aryan peoples from the north were increasingly coming into contact with them not only by raiding their towns and their farms but also at times by simply trading with them and one imagines uh, in 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 some cases also intermarrying and settling down and assimilating and this this process goes on for the next couple thousand years and results in the civilization of the sogdians who were the you know ancestors of the uzbeks and the tajiks
0: you just mentioned something very interesting about the caste system and you know how this was kind of brought by the aryans into the southern regions and then eventually you know going into india and kind of being imposed there um now you, you mentioned um also you know in the book that there are many myths you know around aryans and and their origins and things like this and we know for example that the Nazis actually created an entire ideology based on racial and cultural superiority. Now, they believed that the Germans were of Aryan race, something like the, the swastika, which I, I believe in, in original Sanskrit means something like a fortune or something like this. And, and this was used by the, by the Nazis as their symbol. The Afghans are believing that their ancestors were Aryans, basically, that the Nazis were actually trying to build very close relationships with the Afghan authorities in the late 1930s. There was even an Afghan delegation, including, you know, the king himself, Zaire Shah, I believe. He actually traveled to Berlin. And this was, you know, for the Olympic Games in, in 1936, uh, where they, you know, even personally met with Hitler. And in fact, you know, even gave the Nazi salute. In addition to that, there were around, I think, 300 or so Nazi agents actually stationed in Kabul at that time. I didn't know about all of this, but this was kind of shocking and and uh, to me when I when I found out, I had no idea. Did the Aryans actually you know think of themselves as some sort of a you know racially and and culturally and even you know maybe technologically superior to the other people that they were conquering?
1: Well, the uh, the the appropriation of the notion of Aryanism by the Nazis is one of the great. Uh, uh, sort of historical perversions of modern times, um, and like many perversions, it starts with maybe a grain of truth and then gets wildly bent out of shape. I mean, the Germans are Indo Europeans, uh, or you know, you know Indo European speakers, and so they're the lingu- linguistic. Descendants of the same ancestors as other indo european speakers uh, including you know, uh, you know french and including armenians and and iranians and and bengalis i mean they 're all indo european languages and so they 're all so they 're all descendants of the same linguistic ancestor but again, we talked about the the mistake of conflating language and race because if you you know, put a Bengali speaker next to, you know, an Icelander, you're going to, you know, say, well, these people are obviously not of the same race, but, but linguistically, they have the same ancestor. So that's what this is. That's what's, that's what we have to bear in mind when we talk about these things. Um, uh, yeah. So this, the, the German romantics back in the 19th century already began to, you know, these grand exaggerations of, you know, their sort of, you know, ancient, uh, uh, history. And, you know, what the rest of the world calls Indo-European, they labeled as Indo-Germanic, which is, you know, not really very accurate. Um, um, what you talk about happening in Afghanistan in the 1930s, exactly the same thing was going on in Iran for exactly the same reasons. I think that ultimately it was about geopolitics because both Iran and Afghanistan were kind of caught in this vice grip between the british uh, in india on the one side and and the russians in central asia on the other both of whom had expansionist aims and 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 this was a threat to both iran and afghanistan and so germany seemed like a kind of preferable ally because you know germany didn't pose the same kind of threat that the british or the russians did to the very you know uh, existential survival of Iran and and, and Afghanistan and, and and remember that you know uh, up up until you know World War II most of the non-western world was colonized by european powers right so you know the notion of independence from from the european colonialists was was probably the number one point on the agenda of of the leaders of 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 these various uh of these various countries. Uh, so I don't think that it was about anti-Semitism or racial superiority. Of course, you know, racial everybody loves to be told that they belong to a superior race, right? You know, it's very flattering. But I don't think, of course, the Germans believe for a minute that the Iranians Afghans or Afghans are Japanese because they also had their scholars prove that the Japanese were Aryans. Um, that's all nonsense, you know. It was a convenient and useful fiction that could be used to get people mobilized you know and you know uh, uh but you know you know based on distortions
0: yes exactly distortions so you know i was thinking obviously in history i mean uh, there are episodes like this where allies are being formed not specifically because they love each other but because you know the enemy of your enemy is your friend kind of situation right and i this this could have been the the case with with afghans and and the germans Nevertheless, I also know that they officially, you know, the Afghan authorities back then in the 1930s, they, they were supposed to be neutral, right? And that's what they were telling the people.
1: I mean, if it, if you want to talk about Aryan identity, Afghans, people in Afghanistan, uh, except for the, 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 the Turkic speakers, you know, uh, the Uzbeks and the Turkmen and such, but the you know, majority of Afghans are Aryan speakers and Germans aren't you know, although the uh, Iranian and Germanic languages do have a common indo european ancestor, but you know uh, uh, Iranian speakers are closer to to the Aryan version than the than the germans are um, uh, uh, but uh, but but i mean racially that, that's completely meaningless you know i mean uh, the 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 pushtuns, uh, have legends that they're descended from the lost tribes of Israel and actually. It's not implausible because uh, uh, we know that uh, when the Assyrians overran the kingdom of Israel in 722 BCE, they deported uh, the inhabitants to all the provinces under their control. And that included what's now Afghanistan. So there were Israelites deported to Afghanistan 2,800 years ago, uh, 2,700 some years ago. Um, and maybe they're the ancestors of the pushtuns. It's, it's not impossible, you know? So, I mean, it, it, how do you reconcile that racial uh, 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 question with the idea of, you know, an Aryan identity based purely uh, on, 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 on language? This is why I'm, I, I, I keep saying it's, it's a big mistake to try to mix the two.
0: No, I fully agree with that. So, all right. So let's, let's move on a little. We, we mentioned Aryans and then my understanding is that, you know, while, while the Aryans were, you know, moving into these areas of Central Asia, you know, you had the original inhabitants there as well. And they were kind of mixing and, and forging or shaping, you know, new identities and new languages were being born. And, and I believe, you know, one of the people there, which you mentioned also in the book, are the Sogdians. How much do you actually know about the Sogdians and what, what are their relationships with the Silk Road? Because you, you mentioned this a lot in the book as well. So may, maybe you can talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, uh, as I started to say a while ago, the Sogdians are the result, by and large, of the encounter between two very different societies, the pastoral nomadic society of the um, uh, Aryans from Western Siberia, and the settled agricultural and urban society of the Oxus civilization uh, uh, in uh, in what's now you know Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and uh, uh, northern Afghanistan. So Avesta and the Rig Veda are the oldest um, surviving examples of what we could call a literary production of the Aryan peoples. Again, going back more than 3,000 years, maybe 3,500 years. So that predates the emergence of the Sogdians as a distinct people. That is to say, we, again, the, the first mention of the Sogdians as such is from 2,500 years ago. And and the, the Avesta and the um, uh, Rigveda both probably date to as, as much as 1,000 years before that. So while the Avesta and the Rigveda um, are both products of Aryan, peoples, they uh, represent a stage at which, you know, one group had divided from another group so that, you know, um, uh, the, uh, but uh, and and the Rig Veda was not actually written down until around the 7th century, 8th century BCE in India. And the Avesta was not written down until around, uh, well, probably the 5th century of the common era uh, uh, in, uh, in Iran, in, in, in Persia. In, in southwestern southwestern Iran, but that when I say written down, that's merely a stage in its in their development, because these were originally oral traditions, which were composed by priests and then transmitted orally from one generation to the next over hundreds of years, uh, ultimately thousands of years, um, such that you know uh, by a certain point, even the priests who were the custodians of this literature did not really understand. The content, uh, uh, be, because these were ancient dead languages.
0: Isn't that always kind of the case? I mean, you see this a lot, right? But with, with religions, just generally, uh, the world's religions, you know, it's not like they're written down immediately, you know. It's... It's,
1: yeah, it's true of the Hebrew Bible as well. It's true of the Hebrew Bible. I mean, the Hebrew Bible was an oral tradition originally that got written down, uh, much later. Uh, the, Earliest written versions go back around to that same time as the Rig Veda, around the seventh uh, century, eighth century BCE, and even by then, uh, the Hebrew of those texts was so archaic that it's clear that you know, the, 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 the you know that the, the priests who were the custodians of it didn't really understand it that much. And if you and if you read the most authoritative English translation of the Hebrew Bible today, which is done by the Jewish Publication Society in Philadelphia. Every page is full of footnotes saying meaning uncertain, right? Meaning uncertain. So yes, you're absolutely right. This is true of all these religious texts. It's true of the Mahayana texts of the Buddhist tradition. You know, they claim to to date to at least 500 years earlier than the oldest Written traditions. You know, the oldest written Avesta that we have today is from the 13th century of the Common Era, 700 years ago. That's very recent for a text that probably goes back more than 2,000 years before that. So, what happened to the text during those 2,000 years? You know, and can we really claim to understand what was in the minds of its composers 3,500 years ago? That's very problematic.
0: Well, that's problematic. And what's also problematic is if you are dealing with a specific religion where it's claimed... Uh, I mean, it's not claimed, as far as I'm aware, by, by the Christians or the Jews, you know, that their books are kind of direct words of God, you know, coming to a specific people or person. I mean, people have now accepted, I believe, that, you know, these things were written down by, you know, people living in, in specific times, uh, historically speaking, and, you know, they were influenced, you know, by, by the ideas and ideologies of their times, and they were writing these things down. Once you start to believe that this um you know your your book is a direct word of god without any human interference you know uh, you know then then you have to kind of you know you you're dealing with another problem i would think so next we um a couple of things actually happening with with the sogdians so first of all you know we get cyrus the great he builds this enormous empire achaemenian empire My question is, you know, maybe you can tell us a little bit uh, what this really meant for the Sogdians themselves, the armies of Cyrus the Great, um, going into these regions, engulfing it and uh, kind of making it part of his own empire. How did this actually affect the Sogdians and, and the Persians just generally? And what happened to their culture and language and things like this?
1: Well, first of all, Cyrus did not manage to conquer the land of the Sogdians. In fact, he was killed there. Uh, uh, Mm. by the army of uh, 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 Saka queen, uh, Tahmirish, or Tomyris, as she's known in Greek, um, who is now (laughs) considered a a national hero by the Tajiks, by the Kazakhs, and also by the Assets in the Caucasus, because her tribe was the Masagatah who um, uh, I believe were the you know, direct ancestors of today's uh, assets. So it's really a very complicated story. Uh, the Sogdians are mentioned later, uh, several decades after Cyrus. They're mentioned for the first time in the inscriptions of, of Darius. Um, but they're not, they don't really emerge into history as a consequential as consequential actors in Central Asian history until, you know, five, six hundred years later. So um, I wouldn't really make that uh, connection uh, okay. between the Sogdians and the and the foundation of the Achaemenid Empire. You're talking about different periods of history.
0: Um, I read somewhere that uh, the famous Greek philosopher Pythagoras either met or kind of was deeply influenced by the teachings of Zartosht. And first of all, is, is this true? And second, since we know that uh, you know, Pythagoras was a strict vegetarian, was Zaratustra himself also a vegetarian? How was this kind of eventually affected the Indians? You know, who basically also adopted vegetarianism. Was this all through you know uh, Zarathustra himself, uh, who you know basically influenced all these people and and uh, thinking?
1: Well, these are things. It, it's impossible to, to 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 know any any of these things uh, with any with any certainty. Uh, some of the best Avestan scholars in the world today doubt that such a person as uh, Zoroaster ever even existed. Um, He's not mentioned in any Achaemenid sources, uh, uh, but he's mentioned in Greek sources that are contemporaneous with him, which is really weird. Why would the Greeks talk about this Persian teacher, founder of a religion, when the Persians don't? That's really weird. Um, uh, But what does seem apparent is that uh, we cannot assume uh, connections between this figure that appears in the oldest Greek texts about a, a a Persian sage named Zoroaster uh, and, 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 and uh, the, the religion that we come to know later in Sasanian times, more than a thousand years later as Zoroastrianism. Okay. Prior to Sasanian times, it's almost impossible to know anything about Zoroastrianism with any certainty. There's simply not enough evidence um, and and and, uh, and and so what we have to deal with is that scholars and practitioners and lay people alike, everybody projects what they know later of uh, later zoroastrian. They project it back into the past, into the distant past, sometimes with very little evidence, very very little evidence. Uh, and I don't think that uh, there, I, I don't think there's much basis for talking about. Zoroastrianism with any kind of confidence prior to the, the Sasanian period. Um, so yes, it's very interesting that, that, you know, with these, you know, what the Greeks uh, thought about this Persian Persian sage, there's a good book by uh, Albert de Jong uh, on this subject, just looking at the, you know, the, the Greek and Roman texts about, uh, uh, about Zoroaster and who he was, um, but that we shouldn't make assumptions that, that, that they're describing you know, uh, the uh, the same person or the same ideas as what we find in the later tradition of the Sasanians in Iran.
0: What I wanted to do, uh, you know, discuss with you next is Alexander the Great. The Afghans call him Sikandar Makduni. He defeats Cyrus the Great and kind of build his, his own empire. Now he brings the, you know, the kind of Hellenistic culture with him, To the region of central asia he is quite ruthless but he's also you know he's trying to kind of build some sort of a bridge you know between the peoples that he's kind of conquering and uh, in your book you also mention a very interesting name a lot of afghans are also kind of familiar with her and with her name roxana uh so he marries roxana um who i believe was a Sogdian herself. Then you also say in the book that they even had a child. Now it seems like the, you know, the descendants of Alexander the Great, that they were kind of half Sogdians, uh, which if true is quite interesting. Um, so, you know, what happens, first of all, to the descendants of Alexander, you know, especially, you know, what happens to the mother and the child? And then second, you know, are the modern ethnic Tajiks actually descendants of Alexander the Great. This would be quite a sensational news, I I believe.
1: Yes, sensational. But, uh, well, I mean, again, uh, we don't have documentation uh, that would allow us to make uh, absolute categorical statements about these things. But um, what is absolutely certain is that many, many Greek soldiers were stationed uh, in Central Asia, Alexander founded garrisons all over the place, and his successors, the Seleucids, maintained these garrisons for the next 200 years. Um, so we have a very, very strong Hellenistic presence in Central Asia during these these centuries after Alexander's conquest. So, of course, there is very, very considerable uh, Greek influence, Hellenistic influence uh, throughout Afghanistan, northern Pakistan. Uh, uh southern Tajikistan all of these regions have a very very substantial Hellenistic influence from that period which 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 spans several centuries and this is in architecture um but it could be in other things as, as well it could be well it's in art uh, very much you know the, the statuary art the Gandhara art of northern Pakistan the early Buddhism the earliest forms of Buddhist art, the earliest representations of the Buddha. These are all said to derive from the influence of Greek art, uh, 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 Greek sculpture, Uh, the temples, uh, the temple architecture, the monumental architecture, uh, uh, and Afghanistan is full of this stuff. Um, So it's, you know, that's, that's quite clear. You know, we have Greeks living there. Uh, Greeks and Macedonians um, that are that are uh, the purveyors of this Hellenistic culture. Uh, And it's interesting that the Parthians, who were the successors to the to the Seleucids, the Seleucids were an explicitly Hellenistic Greek speaking dynasty. They are displaced by the Parthians during the second century BCE. But the Parthians maintain a lot of this Hellenistic uh culture uh their coins are uh, uh, use the greek alphabet um they refer to themselves by greek titles they call themselves Philhellenes or lovers of greek culture so the parthians are you know they're pure iranians but you know they are promoting this hellenistic culture again for the next number of centuries, um, uh, Bactrian, which is the uh, Iranian language uh, that was spoken in most of what's now Afghanistan uh, during this period, you know, related to Sogdian, but a different language, the Bactrian language was actually written using the Greek alphabet. Yeah, that influence is very, very pronounced. Now, so if you want to talk about uh, on the human level, of course, these Greek soldiers were uh, uh, starting families with local women. You know what, and, and Alexander set the example. You know, he, he married a Sogdian woman, and and as did many of his generals. Uh, there are many many cases of people we know, uh, members of Alexander's army and the later Seleucids. So they, you know, these these men all married local women, and so their children were, you know, half local, half Iranian, and their their children were three quarters Iranian, and so on and so forth. So we get. This assimilation of these Greek colonizers into the Iranian culture. Um, and uh, uh, a number of years ago, I read an article, I think in National Geographic, about the Kafir Kalash in Nuristan in northeastern Afghanistan, who are not Muslim, and are said by some anthropologists to have preserved Greek dances and some other, you know, uh, elements of ancient Greek. Culture Now, I don't know how you would know <laughs> if a, a dance that they're doing in Afghanistan today is actually the same dance that was done in Greece, you know, 2,300 years ago. Um, it's also said, yeah, a lot of these Kafir kalash are blonde haired and blue eyed. And, you know, again, are Greeks blonde haired and blue eyed what is that you know why, how is that uh, evidence uh, that they're descended from Alexander's army i just i don't know
0: well we have a place in Nuristan you know we have a place there still so we have people you know blonde hairs and and blue eyes and things like this and and well that's what i'm saying that's yeah, what i'm right. saying
1: but what what i would confirm is that certainly you know there is there is greek and, uh, and macedonian dna amongst the afghan population because you know, we know that there were you know hundreds or thousands of soldiers that were stationed there and made their lives there over the course of more than two hundred years.
0: So that's that's quite interesting. While all of this was happening, this this kind of melting, you know, of the Hellenistic culture coming in through you know um, the Greeks, and we had the populations of of Sogdians living there, and then you know this this merging happens. And I believe what we get next, and this is how the historians would call them, um, is the Greco-Bactrian period.
1: Well, there's a there's a there's a process probably goes back into you know ancient prehistory before we even can imagine um but a process of nomadic tribes moving into areas of settled civilizations conquering them and becoming assimilated and then after a time another group of nomads moves in conquers them becomes assimilated you know, and it's just going on and on and on and on again like this. OK, and and, and Central Asia gives us many, many examples of that. So I you know, talked about how the Aryans came in, eventually conquered the Oxus civilization, but became assimilated, developed into the Sogdian civilization. But that's just one of many, many examples. So and these these, you know, so these these nomadic warriors coming out of the Central Asian steppes, uh, you know, during the pre uh, prior to our era. They were mainly led by Iranian speakers. That doesn't mean that there, you know, amongst these tribal confederations, there there weren't tribes of other ethnicities because you know they were not the only people living in Central Asia. What we do see beginning around two thousand five hundred years ago is an increase in the number of uh, Turco-Mongol tribes that are that are moving in and becoming part of this process, and an increasing. Turkification of Central Asia, which is still going on today. That process is still happening in places like Uzbekistan, for example. So the Kushan now, the Kushan are a different story because, well, they were a tribal confederation. They came out of what's now Western China, uh, Xinjiang region. Uh, and uh, th- they are assumed by many scholars to have been, at least the elites, to have been speakers of Tocharian, which is another branch of Indo-European languages. The Toharians were Indo-Europeans that moved into Eastern Central Asia uh, more than 4,000 years ago, uh, before the Aryans did. Um,
0: and uh, So we have a place in Afghanistan actually called Tahar. I'm not sure if that has anything to do with that. That's
1: where scholars took the word from, because the Toharians mm. didn't call themselves that. We have... Uh, many, many documents in Toharian languages from the Xinjiang region, where their languages were spoken right up until about a thousand years ago, again, eventually got overtaken by Turkic so that now, you know, but the Uyghurs today are probably mostly descended from these Indo-European Toharian speakers. And if you go to Xinjiang today and you look at these you know, people who were you know, identified as Turks, I mean, physiologically, they look very European. Many, most of them, um, and uh, so they're probably descended from these Tokharians. And uh, so the yes, um, uh, uh, the fact that there's still that province, Tokhar, in Afghanistan, um, uh, that's uh, that was taken by scholars uh, to, to to apply to these people who founded the Kushan Empire uh, around 2,000 years ago. Tribal confederations are often multi-ethnic and multilingual. So. When we talk about the language or ethnicity of a particular nomadic tribal confederation, what we're really talking about is the elites. And the most famous example is the Mongols, because, you know, the Mongols are an ethnicity with a language and they made a huge mark on history. But guess what? The vast majority of soldiers in the Mongol army were not ethnic Mongols and did not speak Mongolian. Okay, they were mostly Turks, but there were other peoples as well. It was a multi-ethnic thing because that's the way tribal confederations work. Um, So when we talk about the Kushans, this was a tribal confederation coming out of Central Asia, invaders, you know, on horseback, mounted archers, just like we'd been seeing coming through Central Asia for, you know, a couple thousand years already. They were just the next group. Um, But in this case, their elites happened to be speakers of this um, Indo-European language, which, you know, was uh, native to what's now Western China, Xinjiang. Uh, but they very quickly became assimilated to the local Bactrian culture, and they made Bactrian their official language. And so, you know, from that period on, we start to have written documents in Bactrian, of which there are quite a few. Again, using the Greek alphabet, because they were inheriting this Hellenistic you know, uh, 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 administration uh, established by the Seleucids.
0: If I'm not mistaken, in the book um, uh, regarding the Kushans and the Kushan Empire, you say that there was this was very interesting in terms of you know Buddhism in the region and the spread of, of Buddhism as a religion um, in, in this specific uh, you know historical time. You know, is is this when the Buddhas of Bamiyan were built?
1: No, that was later. That was uh, th- 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 they're they're from the I believe 5th 6th centuries. Yeah, the Kushans are more the 2nd to the 4th centuries. But but Buddhism was, you know, remained uh a very important religion, perhaps the most important religion in what's now Afghanistan right up until the uh, Islamic conquest.
0: I guess Maybe we can, you know, we, we leave here the pre-Islamic period and I want to get into the rise of Islam in the region. So, you know, th- this is in the seventh and, uh, and the eighth century where various tribes kind of start to invade and, and conquer, you know, all, all of Iran. And, and I believe back then it was a Sasanian empire. Here I would like to ask you a number of questions. Uh, first of all, how come Arabs were so kind of successful in, conquering the region. I mean, why weren't the Iranians able to kind of hold them back? Second, were the Arabs or, you know, the Iranian Muslims kind of invading Central Asia at this point? In your book, you mentioned that Tajiks are, you know, and we already mentioned this, you know, the Tajiks were being kind of used by Iranians to to refer to one of the, you know, invading tribes. Uh, But you also kind of say that the Sogdians, you know, and the Bactrians were referring to Iranian Muslims as Tajiks. What is really going on here?
1: Well, it's a process. It takes, you know, the Islamization of, the, of, of Iran and the Eastern Iranian world takes three, four hundred years. It, it, it's not something that happens overnight. You know, it wasn't a case of, you know, the Muslims attacking and then suddenly everybody becomes Muslim. It takes a really long time. Um, <clears throat> it's not till the 11th or 12th centuries that we can say that, you know, the population has really become Islamicized. Certain elements of the population, notably the merchants and the bureaucrats, become Muslim right away, because that's how they keep their jobs, right? But the rest of the population, it takes a really, really long time, and there's a lot of resistance, you know, which occasionally flares up into resistance movements, often with a religious character. It has to do, I think, primarily with trade. I mean, of course, if you're a believing Muslim, you're going to say, no, this was the will of Allah. The Arabs were able to conquer all these territories because That was what Allah wanted. But um, that's not something that we can prove or disprove using historical documents. We have to stick with what we have (laughs) and and, 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 and what the historical documents enable us to propose. What we can say is that the first thing that I would point out is that the Arabs were a raiding society, just like these Central Asian nomadic societies that I've been talking about. They were tribal nomadic. They didn't have central administration and their economy depended on raiding. And during the life of Muhammad, uh, all of the tribes or most of the tribes of Arabia submitted to his protection, which meant that they could not raid each other anymore. And since they needed to raid, that meant they had to leave Arabia and start raiding elsewhere. And that's what happened. And what we see when we look at the spread of Arab power is that it follows the trade routes. They go from one economic node to the next and they either negotiate a submission or they, you know, they, 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 they achieve it. Militarily,
0: so there is the there, so that's happening, and then we ha- obviously we also have the Islamization. I mean, it's not just arabization, right? so they they do bring kind of you know their religion with them, and they definitely are kind of interested in that.
1: They're two completely different things. they're 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 two separate processes, and the and the the spread of Arab rule happens very quickly. But over a limited area, it's it's you know, if you look at the map of the spread of Islam, these maps, they're always going to show these vast swaths of territory. And it's false. It's inaccurate because what what they conquered was trade routes and the towns that were connected by these trade routes. That's what the Arabs conquered because they were trying to take over control of 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 trade. Um, and they brought their culture with them to these towns, but they, they for, but this only went on for about 80 years. Okay. Uh, by, by, by the 720s, they, they were a spent force. They had exhausted their, you know, and the, the kind of the last gasp of, uh, of Arab expansion was in, in 751, the battle of Talas against the Chinese, which they won, but then they had to retreat because their supply lines were too extended. Arab Arab expansion really only lasts about 80 years and and it and it's really just an it, it's it's really just bringing trade routes under Arab control and that's a very separate process from what we call islamization or the spread of islam as a religion and islamic civilization which takes a much longer time and is a process which has to develop because islam as we know it today is the product of three or 400 years of debate and discussion and cultural interaction to produce a body of Islamic law that came to be broadly accepted only by around the 11th century.
0: Yeah. This brings us to the, to the Samanian period, right? I mean, this, this mixing, you know, the Arabs coming in and eventually, I mean, not immediately, but eventually, you know, you, you have the Islamization of, of the region. Uh, and then you obviously had the Persian culture that that already existed there. And so you get this beautiful mix. And uh, in the, in the book, you actually call this, uh, the Persian Renaissance. Right. It was quite interesting to me. So when I read that and um, so there was uh, there was a burst of creativity in in this period. Uh, and I believe on, on all fronts. Right. Uh, th- this was a time of really enormous flourishing of literature. You know, you had sciences, you had the philosophy, all these things. And and it produced, you know, so many polymaths, right? You had the great minds such as Ibn Sina. is very, very popular among Afghans as well. So maybe, first of all, let me ask you why it is really considered to be the Persian Renaissance. Well, we were just discussing that, you know, Iranians were kind of defeated and conquered by the Arabs. And we are calling it the Persian Renaissance. I mean, shouldn't it be kind of rather called maybe something like the Golden Age of Islam instead?
1: Well, it often is called the Golden Age of Islam, Um uh, but what people fail to understand very often is that the golden age of Islam was the, was the result of the activities of people who were, for the most part, ethnic Iranians. Um, and, and, and so this is a big misconception. You mentioned uh, you know, Abu Ali ibn Sina or Avicenna, who is regularly referred to as an Arab scholar. And he wasn't an Arab scholar. He wrote in Arabic. Well, you know, you know, Thomas Aquinas wrote in Latin. That doesn't make him a Roman, you know? I mean, uh, the, you know, Arabic was the language of scholarship um, in the same way that English is today, you know? And you and I are speaking in English, but I'm not English and you're not English.
0: So, so the lingua franca was in Arabic, but while these people... The lingua
1: were... franca for scholarship up until the Samanid period was Arabic. And the Samanids did a lot to change that because they were ethnic Iranians, probably Sogdians, although they claimed to be Persian. Um, And I think that this has to do with political legitimacy because they wanted to position themselves not only as rivals to the caliph in Baghdad, who was an Arab, but they also wanted to position themselves as the legitimate successors to the pre-islamic Sasanian emperors of iran and so they they made this statement in writing that these lands are you know persian lands uh, and uh, 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 you know mamlakate ajam is what they say you know these are persian lands and the language of these lands is 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 persian parsi that's what they say in their in written documents of the sasanian or uh, the samanid government i'm sorry um in, in the 10th century and these are essentially false claims <laughs> from my per- perspective because they were not ethnic persians th- those were not persian lands they were sogdian lands and the language of those lands was not persian it was sogdian so these are political claims that are being made by the Samanids to further their own agenda for, you know, reasons that I just suggested. They're, they're setting themselves up as legitimate rivals to the caliph in Baghdad. Uh, but at the same time, they're trying to assume the legitimacy as the center of Islam. And that's why, again, as rivals to the caliph in Baghdad, uh, 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 who at that time we may remind ourselves, you know, was very much under the control of a, of a, of a, of a Shiite um, family uh, called the, the Buyids. So, you know, uh, the, the, the uh, Samanids then, you know, uh, set themselves up as promoters of Sunni Islam and particularly of the Hanafi school and devoted a lot of resources to promoting uh, Hanafi Islamic scholarship in Bukhara, in Samarkand and, and throughout uh, their lands, Herat uh, uh, and uh, um uh, and uh, uh, you know Baal, uh again to further their own legitimacy as rivals to this very much weakened uh, and one might even say inconsequential caliph in Baghdad um, under the thumb of the of the Shiite Buyids. Um, so that not only so at the same time the Samanids were promoting themselves as the uh, as the legitimate champions of Sunni Islam and the legitimate successors to the Persian culture of the pre-Islamic Sasanian Empire.
0: I suppose what you're saying is that the the power centers... Uh, within the Islamic world, kind of shifting from Baghdad to Central Asia, to places like Samarkand and Bukhara, yes? Just to linger on that Ibn Sina question just uh, for a bit longer, I, I don't know why it's that important, to be honest, but there is this debate, this endless debate, you know, where he's from and where, you know, where was he born and things like this. I mean, he's a very, very influential thinker and philosopher, obviously. Do we actually know uh, where he was from in the sense of you know well
1: yes he was he was he was he was He was born in a, a village in the bohara district uh, uh educated in, in bohara and you know patronage from the samanid government his education from the samanid government uh but eventually the samanid, samanids fell and he had to leave and, and he relocated to you know Other parts of of the Iranian world. I suspect strongly that his native language at home would have been Sogdian. I think in the 10th century, in the villages, people were still speaking Sogdian. But because it was not an elite language of scholarship, he very quickly learned Persian and Arabic and became completely fluent in both languages. But um, probably most of these Central Asian scholars in that period were native Sogdian speakers. Uh, Sogdian doesn't really die out until the 11th or 12th centuries. And, of course, uh, a variant of Sogdian is still spoken in parts of Tajikistan today in, in the Yagnob Valley.
0: That's very interesting. So
1: We can consider him a Tajik historically in terms of the definition that I proposed at the beginning of our discussion, you know, a Persian-speaking Muslim. Um, uh, but you could say the same thing. I mean, uh, you know, you have uh, poets from Shiraz making the same, you know, uh, claim about themselves, referring to themselves as Tajiks. But they always do it in the context of differentiating themselves from Turks. Mm. So by saying, I'm a Tajik, saying, I am an urban, educated, sophisticated, you know, literate person, you know, uh, that that's that's what it means to say I am a Tajik. So in that sense, well, absolutely, he was a Tajik. You know, all of these great scholars could have been considered Tajiks according to that definition. But you know, of course, the village where he was born is not part of Tajikistan today. Nor is you know uh, you know uh, uh, Bukhara. Um, although the inhabitants are still yeah the the inhabitants are still. They still speak Tajiki, although it's a dialect that's very, very hard for non-locals to understand. But, you know, Samarkand and Bukhara are both Tajiki-speaking cities. But if you want to talk about great historical figures that were born in Tajikistan, well, you've got, you know, Rudaki. He was born in Panjrud, which is near Panjikant. That is within the territory of Tajikistan today. Um, uh, Molana uh, uh, Rumi was, was born in Uh, The uh, village of Vakhsh, which is uh, in what's now southern uh, uh, Tajikistan. Uh, Strangely, the Tajiks, they make a lot of uh, fuss about Rudaki, you know, as a great national hero and everything. They never say anything about Rumi. I don't know why. I mean, the Afghans claim him, the Turks claim him, the Persians claim him. But... But, but he was, I mean, the Tajiks got as much right or more than anybody to claim him as, as, as one of theirs. He was born in the territory of what's now Tajikistan and he was educated in Samarkand. Um, you know, the, I mean, people call him Balkhi, but people call him Balkhi. But the reason is not that he came from the city of Balkh, but he came from the region of Balkh, uh, which included what's now southern Tajikistan. Yeah, there's a province that included southern Tajikistan. And and in fact the Tajik government now has renamed the the, the major city there, Korgan Tepe. They've renamed it Bohtar to evoke that, you know, that kind of historical claim.
0: Now just to push back a little, I mean Balchi is, you know, uh is a common attachment to, to these, to some of these, you know, great uh, poets and philosophers and things like this, because among Afghans, you know, they would say, Oh, his father was from that region. You know, th- I think that's, that's exactly true of Rumi, right. And, uh, and also Ibn Sina. I mean, uh, his father was too from, from Bagh. Uh Well, he himself wasn't born there. Right. And Rumi was, you know, from Bach that you already mentioned, this was Tajikistan. So.
1: Yeah. Although I would ask, you know, if there's really any benefit to this because um it just creates divisions and com- uh, competition. When in fact, what maybe would be a more positive approach would be to just acknowledge that all of these peoples share in a common, rich culture of which they can all be proud. You know, I, uh, you know, this you know Persian speaking uh, civilization uh, is one of the great civilizations of history, and you know, and 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 you can be an equal participant. Regardless of which region you're from, you know, the ownership, I think, is shared.
0: I absolutely agree with that. And I don't think, you know, someone like Maulana Tal all for I mean, these, these people, they were not interested in these. Tribal thinking and you know where they're from and this kind of discussions. I, I don't even think they were interested in this. It's us, you know, the people who come after them and and we kind of start claiming people. So that's that's quite common in history, as far as I'm aware. So next is very interesting, which is the uh, Ghaznavids, right? The Ghaznavian Mahmud of Ghazna, who was basically from Ghazni, which is also in Afghanistan. He built an, an entire empire. Didn't really last for long. However, it did help Turks to kind of rule over the region and you already mentioned this uh you know that they were ruling uh this uh, this region very very long time perhaps you know hundreds of years um so maybe i should ask you this you know how did this kind of affected the Tajik communities that were living in that era
1: well i already talked about this symbiotic relationship between these diff- two different kinds of societies that goes back thousands of years they depended on each other um the urban societies depended on the pastoral nomadic societies to defend them. Uh, But the, you know, many of the pastoral nomads would come into the urban areas and make their lives and become assimilated. And of course there's a mutual rivalry between these two groups, you know, I mean, the pastoral nomads would look down on the urban dwellers as being soft and weak. And, you know, uh, well, the urban people would look down on the, Pastoral nomads as being barbarians and uncouth and unwashed and so forth. Um, But they needed each other. And by the 10th century, this has evolved to the point where there is this linguistic dimension, um, uh, which sort of feeds into this dichotomy of Turk and Tajik. Um, But the reality is that, that for Turks who wanted to assimilate and rule over these urban societies... They, 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 they had a public relations problem because they were looked down upon as barbarians. And, you know, it's the same that we see all over the world. We see with, you know, the, the Germanic tribes who sacked Rome, you know, well, they, they, they learned Latin and started wearing togas, you know. Um, so this is what, you know, the uh, people do in, in order to sort of win legitimacy is they uh, acquire the uh, traits uh, of the urban peoples. And th- and for the Turks, this included learning Persian becoming, you know, and becoming patrons of Persian culture, poetry, art, architecture, religion, um, and uh, more often than not, marrying Iranian women, because that would be considered marrying up. So Mahmoud is a great example of this. His mother was Iranian, so he was half Iranian. He's always referred to as a Turk, um, but he was half Iranian. And you know, uh, in these kind of societies, uh, uh, children spend the first seven years of their life in the harem. So you got to think that in a harem of culturally Iranian women, there's going to be a lot of Iranian culture that is taught to these kids before they get handed over to their Turkish fathers and enter the world of the males. And I think that that's a really. A, a, an aspect of this history that is very little told and, and deserves a lot more study. So Mahmoud was considered a Turk, but he did more than anybody to promote Persian culture and the spread of a Persian form of Islam throughout his, 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 his rule. Uh, I mean, the Shahnameh, uh, uh the, the Book of Kings of Ferdowsi, which Iranians consider to be their national epic, you know, he was the ultimate patron. Um, uh, although Fairtesi was very disappointed with you know, the amount of money that Mahmoud paid him. But nevertheless, um, Turkic rulers ever since then have made a practice of paying very large sums of money to artists and calligraphers to produce very lavish copies of the Shahnameh for their personal libraries. And over time, uh, what happens is that um, these artists start to paint the, the figures of the Shahnameh with Turkish features, you know, perhaps even the actual faces of their patrons and their friends and, and whatnot as a way of flattering them. And what I think is going on here is you have, again, it's this search for legitimacy that the Turks are seeking to win legitimacy and to increase their status in society by becoming civilized, which means become Persianized. You know, And this is linguistic. It's, it's, it's how you dress. It's, it's your court ceremony. It's the food you eat. It's the music you listen to. It's the dances that you watch. All of this is Persian culture or Iranian culture. And, and, and the Turks become the major promoters of this for the next 900 years. For the, from, from the 11th century up until the 20th century, most of the Muslim world is under the rule of Turkic Dynasties, whether we're talking about Egypt and North Africa or you know, or 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 the Ottoman Empire, the 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 you know the 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 various empires that ruled Iran and Central Asia and India, they were all of Turkic origin or almost all of Turkic origin, but they were not promoting Turkish culture. They promoted Persian culture. And that is a product of this cultural synthesis and symbiosis that I've been talking about.
0: That's very interesting because it seems to me that every single time that when you in that specific region of the world, whether it is the Aryans coming in, you know, the the Turkic tribes coming in, the Mongols coming in, they become Persians basically, you know. And so I I wonder what is it really about this this ancient culture that exists there, that it kind of assimilates, you know, any foreign culture that comes in, it kind of melts and blends into, into this, you know, Iranian culture. What is it so specific about this aspect or feature of the Iranian culture?
1: Well, I don't think it is specific. I, I think you see the same thing in China. You see the same thing in the Mediterranean world, you know, where people, you know, it, it's it's about... What is, what is considered civilization and what is considered high culture and people who want to be members of the elite, they tend to strive to acquire their status by behaving according to the, 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 the cultural standards of, of, of the elite. So again, you know, when the Goths sacked Rome they immediately started behaving like Romans, you know. And Why is it that half of Europe speaks languages derived from Latin? That's not because it was, you know, native Latin speakers. It's that, you know, is that if you wanted to be an educated person or seem like an educated person, you had to express yourself in Latin and, you know, and and behave culturally like a Roman, whether you were, you know, from, you know, Iberia or whether you from wherever you were from. Um, and it's the same in China. I mean, China is a very multi-ethnic country, but throughout history, people from you know all different ethnicities in East Asia have striven to um, uh, present themselves as civilized by expressing themselves in Chinese and by um, you know, living according to the, the the trappings and norms of Chinese civilization. I think that this is this is what's going on here. And for Central Eurasia, you know, basically from the, 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 the you know Anatolia all the way to the borders of of, of China, throughout history, um, uh, uh, this Iranian civilization has been the kind of civilizational standard. Um, that, you know, uh, other ethnicities would adopt.
0: You know, what happens next is uh, quite interesting because you have these, you know, internal warfare almost, you know, you have these internal conflicts. Uh, and then eventually out of this conflict, I believe it's the Gurits, the Gurid Empire, the Tajik people somewhere from Herat. You know, we, we get the... Mughal Empire later on, right, who are basically descendants themselves of Genghis Khan. They rule over a region from uh, Central Asia to basically uh, north of India. And, uh, you know, the the Mughals do remain in power uh, until the rise of Nader Shah, Nader Shah Afshar in Iran, who conquers Central Asia. and, And, um, he would then start to work on his own empire, the Afsharid Empire. You know, I'm telling this because what happens next is very, very interesting from, you know, Afghanistan's perspective and the people of Afghanistan. Because this is when you, you know, this you see the beginnings of a, a totally, you know, a entirely different kind of game, which is, you know, called Raid Game. You have uh, the Russian Tsars kind of encroaching and coming in from the north. From the south, you have the British Uh, And who are also kind of very interested, they're interested in Central Asia and kind of going into that area as well. So, and then, you know, you have this Afghan himself who is also kind of building his own empire. Maybe you can talk a little bit about who this person was and, you know, what his goals were and how he managed kind of carve out a little bit of space, you know, for a place called the Durrani Empire, sandwiched between these, you know, two superpowers at the time, which then eventually, you know, gave us uh, modern Afghanistan as we know it now.
1: Well, the Durranis were a Pushtun tribe, um, and historically— uh, the word Afghan referred to Pashtuns specifically, uh, going back more than 1,500 years. It, it, we see it in, uh, in Sanskrit sources and, uh, and Middle Persian sources. It's referring to the Pashtuns. This uh, this notion of Afghanistan as it exists today, it's product of you know early modernity. It's it's a product of the mid 18th century because um, prior to that, what we now refer to as Afghanistan was simply you know, Eastern Iran. Uh, so this whole notion of an Afghan identity this is a this is a modern construction, and it's and, and it's and it's based on pushtun identity, which is of course <laughs> troublesome for the other half of people who live in Afghanistan who are not pushtuns. Um, and <clears throat> and moreover, uh, the 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 high culture of that. You know, that part of the world, eastern Iran, throughout history was, you know, historically Persian Um, or, you know,
0: was this called Khorasan back then In this time was this Khorasan? Greater Khorasan, you could
1: say. Greater Khorasan. But, you know, uh, but these regions were referred to, you know, um, by their... The, the name of their major city. So, you know, you have Balkh region, Kabul region, Kandahar region, Herat region, you know. Um, but you could say, yes, you know, uh, greater Horasan, which also includes, you know, much of what's now you know, Turkmenistan, uh, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and so forth. But as part of the uh, broader Iran, there's no Afghanistan. Oh, well, Afghanistan is the place where the Pashtuns live. But the Pushtuns were, you know, were were rural people living in the mountains, and and uh, you know, not uh, and, and 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 well, like anybody, they could participate in civilization, uh, this this Iranian civilization, by becoming Persianized, by learning Persian, and by starting to dress like Persian and act like Persian, and so forth. Um But you know, it's but like then, the Turks. yeah, exactly. You know, so, so so you know, you 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 go from this you know tribal. Uh, kind of society to this broader civilization. So many Pashtuns uh, did that, and many Pashtuns, thats true of many pushtuns today. Many Pushtuns today are perfectly fluent in Persian and can recite the Persian poets as well as anybody, and you know, and are fully, you know, part of that broader culture. Um, so you know, but but if we talk about what's specifically hmm. considered Pushtun culture in in history, it's a tribal culture, which is which is rural. Uh, and and, and, and uh, so uh, Ahmad Durrani, uh, he's, he begins his career as a, as, a, as a general in Nader Shah's army. And Nader Shah's empire falls apart because he goes insane. Um, and he's eventually murdered by some of his own uh, soldiers. And so the various, uh, as happened after Alexander died, when his generals all competed for different parts of his empire, the same thing happened with Nader Shah and Ahmad Durrani was a, a, a military figure who happened to have the skill and the, the fortune to be able to seize a large portion of Nader Shah's empire for himself and set himself up as the new ruler of this empire, which he called Afghanistan.
0: Did he really uh, mention this somewhere? You know, I know that he also wrote poems and things like this. I mean, I'm not sure how much, you know, literature is there from, from the Pashtuns, but also from, you know, the, uh, the Ahmad Shah himself. I mean, did he really mention his own empire to be Afghanistan, or did he say, you know, this is my kind of empire? And I, I can't of-
1: say that for sure. And I'm, 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 I'm getting in, I'm getting out of my comfort zone here okay. because I'm really not a historian of Afghanistan mm-hmm. um, or, or this per- particular period. Okay um so yeah i i that i'd have to check that, that.
0: that's fine that's fine so you know and um all of this had also like an effect on the tajiks i mean you had russians and and you had the british and then you had the you know the durrani empire obviously an empire which is being carved out it also means that you're kind of building uh these Artificial borders, where you have, you know, you're kind of cutting people off, right? You you had the, for example, you had the Tajiks uh, who were living, you know, in Central Asia, and you also have the Tajiks, as you know, at you know, thirty five percent or not more of of Afghanistan, you know, population is is Tajik, ethnic Tajiks. So, you know, they were they were kind of cut off, right? Um, so, how did that really affect the Tajiks and and the Tajik identity? Again,
1: we're talking in sort of twentieth century identity terms uh and applying it to 18th and 19th century people um i think in the period that we're talking about people didn't necessarily identify themselves in in these terms but more often according to their place of origin uh or their profession or or something like that Uh, so um uh you can say you know how did the uh, Pashtun rule affect, you know, uh, the, the inhabitants of Mazar-e-Sharif, for example. I mean, you can ask, frame the question in that kind of way, but to say how it affected Tajiks, I, I I'm not very comfortable in, 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 in framing the question in those terms if we're talking about the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, certainly, certainly, I mean, these c- connections between the urban peoples, you know, who could very easily communicate with each other across the broader Iranian world. These came to be uh, uh, difficult, if not impossible, beginning in the early 20th century because of these political divisions imposed by the colonial powers. Um, But, you know, prior to that, the average person living in a village would never have had these connections anyway. And they wouldn't have had this kind of notion of I'm a Tajik or, you know, or or I uh, share a culture with the villagers uh, in, outside of Shiraz you know, or Tabriz or, you know, or Samarkand. They wouldn't have had these notions in their hand. And let's face it, prior to the 20th century, you know, the vast majority of people, 90, 95 percent of the people lived in villages. So they just didn't have this experience or this mentality that we're talking about and often wrongly projecting onto them. It didn't affect them. You know, the the rulers are off there in the big city. They're oppressors. You know, they don't have our interests at heart. And we just got to make do. And so the actual linguistic or ethnic affiliations of those far off oppressive rulers doesn't really make that much difference, according to villagers. And I wonder if that isn't to some extent An explanation for how the Taliban came to get back into power a year ago so easily, because, again, most Afghans live in villages and, you know, and probably don't see the urban based rulers as looking out for their interests um to any great extent uh, and, and, and and wouldn't necessarily identify them to with any great extent
0: that, that's right, but the great difference I think with what was happening you know uh, at the time of the Durrani Empire and things like this and what's happening now obviously these these are different times and different things are happening because You know, these people might have lived in villages and they have thought about themselves like, you know what, we we don't identify ourselves as as Tajik or or Turk or whatever. We just live our lives and we, you know, speak our language and we understand, you know, our neighbors and things like this. That That's our identity. Basically, I am from this place. Right. So, for example, you have people in Afghanistan right now, you have the, you know, people from Badakhshan, you know, from Panjshir. You know, they would tell you that they are Tajiks. And then what happens next is that once you have identified as a Tajik, that starts to mean something to you, right? As a person, you start to see, okay, what is my, you know, heritage culturally speaking, you know, what is, what does this mean politically speaking? Um, How is this affecting my life as a Tajik? You know, what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do? It is almost like an, you know, entire package of identities, basically uh, all of them kind of together in this, in this one term, which is Tajik. Now, if I understand you correctly, so, I mean, the people didn't, for a very long time, they didn't think of themselves in those terms, right? I, I'm, I'm a Tajik and you as well, so let us kind of come together and form this, this, this tribal identity. Uh, they were just living their lives. Now, this is a different story, I think, when it comes to the Taliban, right? So because, What's happening now you see this reaction right uh, you had the action which is the Taliban taking over Kabul and the major cities but they also now are going into the villages they are telling people how to behave what to drink what to eat you know how to clothe themselves and things like this and so when this happens i think it is very common for people to, to see like, oh, this is kind of alien to me, right? I mean, I have never been pushed to speak another language. I was always kind of, you know, told this is my language and this is what we have been doing forever. All of this dynamic, even if it's in a village like Badakhshan or, or these places, you know, which is kind of bordering with Tajikistan, I think it has now, it's like an awakening of this, of this awareness of who am I and what is happening even in those villages. And that I think translates itself, right? into um, maybe, you know, it it gets politicized and things like that.
1: Well, I'm sure you know much more about these things than I do. And this is the reason that I'm so frustrated that I have not been able to spend time in Afghanistan myself, because I cannot say, not having spent time there, I don't know that if you sit down in a tea house with a group of, you know, Tajiks and Panjshir, you know, if, if through the course of the conversation, it emerges that, you know, that, that they are going to start, you know, quoting, you know, the Golistan of Sadi, you know, as part of the conversation, if they're going to express any kind of solidarity with the people in, you know, in, 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 in Shiraz or in Samarkand uh, or not. Uh, I don't know that because I haven't been there. I haven't heard these things. I haven't experienced it. Um, so I really, you know, I, I can't even have this conversation because I just don't know.
0: Let's just talk a little bit about this, you know, the Soviets coming into this, in this place, you know, it's like, I see it like, you know, the Mongols coming in because it was a disaster, to be honest, when the Mongols came, uh, you know, uh, it depends on how you see this because there was also, there's always like a silver lining to everything, right? When it comes to the, you know, historical events, even with the Chang'e Khans coming in and, and the Mongols. Now, something very similar i think happened when the soviets you know were trying to influence uh central asia now i i am you know kind of familiar with the civil war of the early 1990s in afghanistan and um something that i personally kind of you know experienced firsthand you know i i didn't know much about the kind of civil war of tajikistan right and and all of this is post-soviet obviously when these you know these this place was there was a lot going on and people were trying to you know again back to the identities you know who am i uh what what does a nationality mean maybe you can explain a little what really happened you know with the civil war of tajikistan and you know who was fighting who and maybe even more importantly why were they actually fighting because they just got you know their independence one would think
1: Well, I think that similar to what we were saying about uh, Afghanistan, that during the 20th century, under Soviet rule, Soviets had this ideology of creating these national identities. But uh, its success was quite limited. And and, and in Tajikistan, I think it was essentially a failure. Um, I I think that the Soviet system, and in particular Tajik intellectuals, completely failed to instill in the population anything like a Tajik national identity such that when independence came, you had a country that was very poor and which now was cut off from the systems, you know, of of industry and economy and agricultural trade and all these things. Education was cut off from all these things that it had benefited from for 70 years uh, for its development and had to go its own way. And then, you know, you just, it, it, it just became a free for all. And because there was no sense of national solidarity, it was just every regional gang out for itself, you know? Um, and I, 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 I imagine very similar things going on in Afghanistan, although I haven't been there, but, um, <clears throat> So you know, that that to me, is the answer. The civil war was came about as a result of competing interests amongst regional gangs in the absence of any kind of national solidarity that could, you know resist that. because nationalism was was a fantasy of the intellectual elites who were essentially out of touch with the realities and the mentalities of most of the population. And that remains the case right up to today.
0: It, it surprises me though, because my fellow Afghans would tell you, you know, they would say these Central Asian republics, I mean, they're so stable in a way. Yes, it's true. You know, they went through this, you know, like a civil war in Tajikistan in the early 1990s. Um, but overall, I mean, the, the country has been quite prosperous, you know, um, and, and this is, I think, true for all the Asian republics. And I think it's kind of understandable, right? If you're, if you're an Afghan, you know, having seen your country kind of, you know, being at war for over four decades, you know, and, and, and it's being destroyed, right? Um, many times over. So maybe, maybe you will think, you know, the Tajiks and, and both kind of, you know, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan are, are, are being culturally and, and ca- kind of politically kind of oppressed, you know, uh, in, in their own countries and things like this. So. I guess, you know, the question of Tajik identity still is up in the air, at least in Afghanistan, because there's a lot going on right now with, with the debates around this. You know, what is your feeling? Where do we stand with this whole idea of a Tajik identity in the 21st century?
1: To me, it's extremely depressing because uh, 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 there's just, you know, lots of... Uh, negative signs uh, all over the place, wherever you look. I mean, you, you know, I, if, if you say that in Afghanistan, they look at Tajikistan as being prosperous, uh, uh, that, that, that kind of blows my mind because Tajikistan is an economic disaster. It's the poorest country in the former Soviet Union. People are miserable. Um, and I mean, there's at least a million uh, 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 Tajiks uh, working in Russia. And, and, and you know, 50% of the economy is dependent on their remittances. Um, uh, and uh, it's said the other 50% comes from, you know, the drug traffic. So what, if, you know, is there actually any legitimate economic production going on in Tajikistan? It's a really, really awful situation. And uh, political stability? Absolutely not. I mean, look at what's been, been going on in Badakhshan for the past, you know, nine ten 10 months. Um, and, 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 and it's just, um, it's a, it's a it's a war zone. And 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 there, uh, you know, it's just the 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 only the semblance of stability is only maintained through an absolute, you know, um, military dictatorship. It's a uh, 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 complete suppression of any kind of freedom of expression, um, and uh, it's really awful. And I would say that for Tajiks in Uzbekistan, they they have a much better life because at least they're living in a fairly stable country, which is not. As much of an economic basket case as Tajikistan is, Um, you know, you cannot really assert your Tajik identity in Uzbekistan. So, you know, I mean, Tajiks might be anywhere from 15 to 50 percent of the population of Uzbekistan. There's no way of measuring that with any accuracy. But ultimately, it doesn't really mean much because. The, the uh, literacy in 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 the language is is almost non-existent. It's just a few intellectuals that can actually read and do actually read and write in Tajiki in Uzbekistan. So even if fifty percent of the population speaks the language, they're divorced from the literary tradition. Uh, their reading and writing is all in Uzbek or Russian. So um, so what does Tajik identity even mean in in uh, in, uh, in uh, in Uzbekistan and in, in Bukhara, which is overwhelmingly Tajik uh, uh, speaking city, 90 percent or more. But, you know, you talk to young generation today, they don't care about Tajik identity. They say, yeah, I'm an Uzbek. Yeah. At home, we speak Tajiki with my friends. We speak Tajiki, but I'm an Uzbek, you know, and they don't see that as being in any kind of, you know, conflict. It's like I'm an Uzbek who happens to speak Tajiki. Um it, 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 so this whole identity issue, and that actually goes back to the way things were before the Soviet period, because in these Central Asian cities, people spoke Turkish and Persian with equal facility. And I don't think that language was a major marker of identity. And I think in Uzbekistan, it's kind of gone back to that. But what's sad is that in Uzbekistan, the, the Persian literary tradition has basically disappeared. Um, and that has has divorced them from... Persian speakers in other parts of the world and divorce them from this community of inheritance of this great cultural tradition because it's it's you know it's ba- disappeared or disappearing
0: I mean, so that's what I meant by, you know, this artificial kind of border situations because, you know, you mentioned this already and we have obviously Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, all these republics in this place, which one time these were all kind of Central Asian, you know, mixture of, of cultures and peoples and languages and all these things. And then, you know, A lot of it has to do something with social engineering. I believe you also mentioned this in the book. The the Soviets actually tried to kind of impose these things, you know, the the different nationalities and things like this. You know, we haven't had time even to think, you know, to talk about, you know. And the
1: successive governments, the successive governments have continued to do the same thing. And I guess in Afghanistan it's happening as well. You know, the the attempts of pushtunization uh You know, uh, that's exactly
0: right. So, you know, we, we could have we could have avoided, I believe, so much trouble in that region if we all kind of agreed that we are kind of Iranians in the first place. And then we kind of build on that. Right. From an European perspective, I mean, if you say once upon a time, you know, we had the Roman Empire and then the Roman Empire, you know, it kind of started off as a, as a very small city, you know, in Italy and it kind of, you know, you had this huge empire afterwards for, for hundreds of years. And then you had the city states, you know, and then you had these um, countries and, 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 uh, and nation states that, that came along later. And so if we can agree up, upon some things, at least, you know, some, some sort of a common language, uh, you know, or, or a common culture, maybe culturally it's, it's a bit difficult, but at least starting off with, with language would, would already, be, already be very helpful, I think.
1: Well, you know, I mean, I think it would be nice if people would accept that being multilingual is a plus. Okay. So if you're, if you're an Uzbek who, who grew up speaking, you know, Uzbek at home, or you have who grew up speaking Pushtun at home, and you also acquire fluency in Persian. That's a plus. That enables you. That enables you know this Pushtun and this Uzbek to participate in a common cultural heritage of which they can both be proud. Um, well, not and, for the purists,
0: you know. Yeah. Well, not, I think that's. An, a I, I think that's
1: a shame. Yeah. I think that's unfortunate. That's, that's
0: exactly right. Well, I, I feel the same way. I think a lot of our energy goes into this absolutely nonsensical, you know, it's, it's a, it's a starting point, which is we are not interested in building, right? You're, you're much more interested in what divides us, right? So, you know, no, you know, we're not Iranians. I I am this and I'm that, you know, if we at least, you know, agree on some things and build upon that, right? Even if you're, uh, if, if if you have differences between yourselves which is obviously very common among people of the world we just mentioned you know germanic i mean i live here in the netherlands i mean so the the language is germanic uh so so what i mean everyone accepts that right um and that, and that's okay and that's fine and then you know we have our nation states here in europe as well i mean this could be you know like a conversation to be had at least right now there's no conversation and when conversations end You know, that's that's when we lose everything, because then, you know, it's a it's a matter of kind of imposing power and uh, and uh, and going into wars, basically. And that's what's what's been happening in the region for a very long time. And I think a lot of it most likely has something to do with this notion of tribal thinking. I do not understand you. I'm not bilingual, for example. So, I you know, when you speak Pashto to me and I am, you know, I understand Farsi and, and my native language is Farsi. Uh, you know, what, what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do? Because I do not understand you. So this divides us. And and that means you're my enemy kind of situation. Well, you could have said, you know what, what binds us, you know, we, our ancestors have been living in this region for what, 5,000 years. Like this is what we just, you know, discussed. I mean, if we, if you understand a little bit about, you know, all of this historically and you put what is happening right now in a historical perspective, I think you will get most likely uh, also that kind of, you know, picture of maybe I shouldn't be kind of separating myself from the rest of, of the people living here. I might be the Pashtun or Tajik or whatever, but what binds us maybe is even, even more important because if, if there's no binding, if there's no understanding, I think that will eventually lead to a lot of trouble. So. Now, having said that, I am now increasingly mindful of your time. So, you know, and and I'm sure we could talk for hours here. So nevertheless, one last question, you know, do you think we are doomed here, you know, when it comes specifically to Afghanistan and its issues and problems? Ethnicities going on, you know, with the Pashtuns and the Tajik rivalry there. Are uh, you think there is still some hope for the people, for and for the region, for the wider region, because these these regions are connected. Uh, the way I understood it from your book, you know. So if it's if it's that kind of connection, I mean, what, whatever happens in Afghanistan might eventually kind of affect the wider region also, the Central Asian republics, for example. So you know, what is what is your overall feeling? Uh, you know, are you more optimistic or pessimistic about this?
1: Well, you ask if we're doomed. Um, I think that the question is global because we have our human activities have brought us into an environmental crisis, which is global and which nobody can escape from. And the only way we're going to avoid being doomed is if we all pull together and change the way we live uh, on this planet. And uh, the, the, so it, we can't think in terms of countries anymore. We have to think of, you know, um, uh, how we're going to make the dramatic changes that are necessary to, you know, get away from this dependence on fossil fuels. Uh, because other than that, um, you know, it, all these other discussions about nationalism, about gender relations and equality and migration and social justice, You know what? It's all fighting over deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, Um, the ship is going down. That's the first thing we have to fix. And then we can worry about these other things. That's that's my opinion.
0: So let me, you know, ask you where where can people actually find you, uh, uh, Professor Rachel Uh Are you on social media? I will, of course, also share the links to your books in the description.
1: I'm not on social media. Um, uh, I'm very much a 20th century person. Uh, haven't really made it into the 21st century at this point. But um, I mean, I I, I I try to publish regularly, express my opinion, and. Uh, my uh, uh, email contact is easily uh, findable on, on, on Google. Uh, so I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not hiding out. I'm just not, uh, just not very tech savvy.
0: Well, it has been great talking to you, Professor Fultz. And uh, thank you very, very much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: My pleasure.